and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. Houses, we all live in them, but we can't necessarily afford them. Besides, we probably want a home, not just a house. And a home is a lot more than four walls. It needs to be somewhere you can create memories with a bit of character, warm in the winter, affordable, um, or otherwise, you know, it quickly turns from a home into a burden. So houses, homes, or rather architecture is what we're going to be talking about today with a fantastic world champion from Off Grid Works. Will and I met in Singapore a few months ago, and we got talking about infrastructure and housing developments and how things could be done very differently to how they're being done now in a much more sustainable and, and practical way and more affordable way. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the wide range of projects Will has been involved with all around the globe, including some mega projects, um, some of the ones you've probably seen in the news. Plus, we're going to talk about his company and how he's constructing homes using robots to tackle the housing crisis. And most importantly, we get to check out one of these awesome properties. I really enjoyed recording this episode, and Will and I actually end up talking for about seven hours in total as we end up going to the pub after the episode, so really fantastic day. Um, fortunately, you don't need to listen to all of that, um, but I hope you enjoy and find it as thought-provoking as I did. Many thanks. I hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. Here's a quick message from one of our sponsors. Make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design. Vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. Yeah. Start. Do we have to clap? Do the thing. <laughs> we edit that in. Do the thing. <laughs> There's an audience you can't see here in the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Will, absolutely fantastic to see you again. It feels yeah. like we only saw each other yesterday, but it's surprisingly been a couple of months already. Yeah. But we met in Singapore on an Innovate UK programme. Yeah. Um, it's almost as hot as it is now. Yeah, yeah incredibly <laughs> warm, incredibly warm. Um, and that was a really interesting sort of program so we were both there for quite different reasons but to talk about sustainability and net zero and how Singapore can look at you know new technologies and new ideas and how UK companies can find opportunities there yeah. so we were both part of the same program coming from the UK to talk to Singapore companies and and the government and sort of things going on there so that that's where we met mm-hmm. and um, we sort of clicked right away really because what we're doing is 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 quite similar we're coming at the same sort of problem, but from different perspectives, which is quite interesting, and different disciplines as well. Yeah. So I think finding out a bit more about what you do, what you have done, and what you're doing now would be really, really interesting. Because for me, it covered so many things I had no idea about or didn't understand the sort of depth of ideas and, and things that were sort of happening in the architecture world. It's true, yeah. I think that's what's interesting. I think mm. that's why GBIP is really good. Yeah. Because... I think that was your first one. That was my second one. So I've been on one to Brazil before. But it, oh, was, yes. it was your second one as well, right? Third one. Your even. third one. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so like a veteran of the yes. Egypts. Well, that's what's amazing about it is like, don't really come across that many people in like horizontal industries. Mm. So I think that was like really complementary skills and a sort of synergy yeah. between us. But at the same time, I was literally working on a project being like, oh, I wish I could talk to someone mm. about the stuff that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then probably vice versa. You're exactly. You're thinking of the same. So... Yeah, it was, I think, yeah, definitely hit it off pretty quickly. But yeah, time flies. I felt, mm. felt like that was not that long ago. It's yeah. great that we can sit down and discuss, you know, everything that we're, we're working on. And I get to talk about stuff <laughs> that mm. I'm doing rather than just to 
people who are getting bored of it right now. <laughs> and just That's what on. I always worry. I'm always talking about so many things and people, you start thinking, oh, actually, people, they're starting to lose interest in what we're doing. But yeah. I think what was, what's really interesting about the GBIP stuff, just talk about it very quickly because mm. it's a fantastic opportunity for people with innovative ideas. Mm. Um, so I've sort of mentioned it already, but it's, it's basically government support for new companies or new ideas or companies that are trying to innovate and do sort of R&D or bring new technologies to new markets to help support them in going to these markets and meeting sort of key people. Yeah. Um, so what you do is you get to meet a lot of really fantastic companies that have sort of been pre-selected by uh, members of the British government who work in these sort of territories or countries mm -hmm. They introduce you. But also and what I found on, on both of the programs I've been on, which really surprised me, is the selection of companies that go is fantastic mm -hmm. um, because we're so, as you say, horizontally aligned in, in what we do. And there's many other people we met that are, are as well. And our Brazil trip mm. ended up with us leaving with sort of two new partners for, for projects, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and that's something none of us ever really expected to find on, on the program. So if anyone is, has got a really innovative idea, has got a business that's looking at new territories, I think we should probably open by saying, that's why we're sat here. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's gonna be another yeah. podcast with a company um, that we met from Mexico on the Brazil one as well, yeah. um, talking about what they're doing with algaes and things later on. Yeah, yeah. So anyone that's got really interesting ideas, wants to move to a new territory, start looking at the, these GBIT programs. Definitely, yeah. So that's, yeah, stands for Global Business Innovation Program. Mm -hmm by Innovate UK. Yeah, really recommend it. And we're not even sponsored to, yeah, to say that. Exactly, yeah, we're not sponsored. Though I do feel, you know, we're slightly indebted for them helping fund the trips. And yeah, things, exactly. So, but there's uh, no re requisite to, to actually, like, publicly say it. But <laughs> every, every, each one uh, has been kind of better than the, the last. And yeah, never you go in there with one expectation of, mm -hmm. oh, I just want to go and learn about South Korea or mm -hmm. Taiwan or Singapore and see what they're doing in the market. How can our product fit and then you end up meeting all these interesting people doing mm -hmm. similar stuff and I think yeah th there's always a this classic kind of uh, Paul Graham thing uh, from Y Combinator where he's saying how uh, you really need those entrepreneurial minds work better together you need to be mm. like a community of entrepreneurs Indeed. and usually it can be quite isolating mm -hmm. when you're running your own company and you're kind of only you on your own at the at the top or with that responsibility and usually in your day-to-day -day life wouldn't often come across other people doing a similar thing or doing other entrepreneurial things like naturally so that's actually a really good opportunity to meet people in doing this you know similar thing uh also going through the same problems that you can talk about like grant proposals or t talking about you know trying to break into those markets and what's interesting on that course there's some uh, on the program was how some people bit more advanced probably going to like seed stage or series a funding mm -hmm. and you've also got like pre pre-seed like startup really early stage and you can learn a lot from each other just just through that that program and yeah absolutely and people's connection good. things as uh, people's connections and things as well though is really key so yeah. like with you for instance some of the projects you're involved in they're very much the projects that we want to get involved in as a company and, and, and mm. again vice versa and we found this before as well where some of the things that we're doing um, especially around on the water side um, actually we didn't realize some of the new innovations and technologies coming forward that are absolutely complementary to what we're doing mm. but we hadn't really considered and actually as part of our holistic solution they really need to be part of it so you start meeting companies and you're sort of going well actually 
together we're so much more powerful and so much more influential and um, can offer such so much better service and um, you know a more of an end-to-end -end solution as well for clients that actually yeah. you know we should partner and that's something that I found again a, a lot is actually there's a lot of companies that sort of come out these with new partnerships or deals or, or whatever yeah, yeah. Um, and you know it's, it's a way for a company to really start developing and building because suddenly you're not on your own you've mm -hmm. got someone else with a really fantastic idea with a similar sort of train of thought about how to tackle a problem yeah. and then you can work with them to sort of build your own business and join forces to it's true you know, everyone's betterment I was thinking how I was saying this before that if, if we was trying to do a G-bit on your own like if you mm -hmm. said oh I'm going to go out and do the exact same stuff that we did like one it would probably be impossible mm -hmm. to get in the doors that they allow us to and it would be like you, you, you couldn't line up all those people it's, it's, it helps when you say oh I'm here with the British government yeah. it opens the doors to speak to the people you want to speak to and then yeah I've met so many great people in in the different industries because because like what we're doing spans quite a lot mm. except before we've kind of vertically integrated architects so we have um a con like a development and construction and design and a bit of robotics so it's like you're able to meet loads of different people doing lots of different stuff uh, and the government uk government's able to facilitate that and i think what was really good about the singapore one was say going to ecosperity mm. which didn't, which was like an invitation only and you could only get in the door and I don't know how they got his tickets. But no, I don't, especially when the president of Indonesia turned up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> which wasn't expected. Yeah, and there's like airplane style security coming yeah, in. And you're like, What's, who's that for? It's like, yeah, president of Indonesia or like CEO of BlackRock or yeah. McKinsey and stuff. And uh, yeah, met some really great people that like had a really good chat with like the head of uh, Break for Energy, mm -hmm. who's like the VC for... Uh, Bill Gates' climate tech fund. Oh, okay. And I've been talking to them since, and they're really elusive, like really mm. difficult to get in the door um, or just get hold of them or just chat with them. And it's like, you could only, like, that, that would be would have been impossible without GBIT. Absolutely. I mean, we had the same thing. We, we met, I met a gentleman um, who is responsible for basically energy and water for India. Right. And, yeah. um, and then another, we met another person on a previous one who's who's from the World Bank responsible for um, more than one continent for the World Bank yeah. and you think how on earth did we, how on earth did we end up chatting to this guy a totally you know almost random event you know but yeah, yeah. It's, but I mean getting to the events themselves is incredibly challenging you say a lot of them are invitation only yeah. but actually when you are there because of the program you're with the decision makers or the key people so yeah. for instance in that instance we were talking to um, a lady and she said oh do you know who you need to talk to yeah. This guy from the World Bank, yeah. I'll call him. You know, oh, come over here, have a chat to these guys, and, and all of a sudden, it's you know a whole totally different door that you never anticipated to even come near, yeah, open yeah. to you. Um, yeah. So really amazing how you connect with these people. Yeah, um, and it's just those small little connections suddenly because they're such interesting people and so well connected themselves. It just opens so many doors. Yeah, fascinating. Really, you never know who you're going to meet because there was even one time you just went to it was the Asia Tech Week type thing mm. expert. And I was like, ah, oh, wasn't really fancying it, I'm not too sure. But I just went only for an hour, just mm -hmm. looked around. I got talking to one guy, took took his uh, just his card, and yeah, we've been talking ever since. And now we may may go and for the bilateral or something mm -hmm. together. And we've actually that was probably someone we've been talking to the most. And it was just from you know going to one thing. You never know what's going to come out of it. Absolutely. You think, oh, it's just going to be a trip to Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you just meet so many. Uh, 
great people so like yourself that's mm. it <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we'll be doing this exactly. chat otherwise <laughs> <laughs> indeed well, i suppose that brings us to who are you and <laughs> yeah. uh, at last finding right yeah. uh, and why are you here yeah. um so i think you've got a really fascinating background and some of the projects and things you've been involved in have just been amazing yeah. and i think i'm just not going to do introducing some of the stuff you've done justice so right. do you want to talk a bit about your background and the sort of projects you've been involved with yeah that's yeah so i'm an architect by trade mm -hmm. so fully qualified and then studied in the UK. And then uh, when I was doing my master's at Cambridge in kind of a climate resilience, but it was in, it was my master's in architecture, but it was, if you do like a two year research project and mine was on flood resilience and all about climate change and how we can adapt the built environment to prepare for climate change. And I got really interested in flood resilience because like where we are now is Lincolnshire. Mm -hmm. It's and I used to, well, I was born in Boston, Lincolnshire, the original one, and uh, that's very low sea levels, uh, mm. very low compared to sea level. So it's a huge risk of flooding, and um, it's yeah, there's not that much kind of being done about it. So I was doing a lot of work like how you could adapt buildings to that, mm. and then got really interested in the flood defences being built in New York and then basically went and worked for BRK Ingalls Group mm -hmm. in New York to help design the flood defences out there. So I was doing my research at Cambridge and they um, uh, and got really lucky because they had just stopped the project and just as I joined in that September 2018 they restarted it because they designed something called the Big U which is um, all the way around Manhattan, a huge new park kind of like the high line but mm -hmm. it's called the dry line so it goes all the way around the edge and it, it's a huge flood defense but it doesn't look like a flood defense mm -hmm. so it's all lots of uh kind of public engagement stuff and parks and uh like kind of facilities and uh, there's a aquarium and a museum there's a huge huge master plan and that's to protect the from rising sea levels but also hurricanes and storm mm -hmm. surges and then i worked on one of the small u's because the big u which goes around Manhattan, you can imagine Manhattan's kind of like a U. It's split up into lots of smaller U's, which then go deeper into the into the island, so that when a hurricane hits, like Hurricane Sandy, and you get flooding, you can close these barriers and you across like FDR Drive and all those and different uh, avenues, and you can kind of close off all this thing like a like a ship, mm -hmm. and then it becomes protected. So I worked on one of the the first one, which is called Eastside Coastal Resiliency. It's like a two billion pound, two billion dollar project all across the east side near um, Williamsburg Bridge. And we redesigned this massive park, used to be called Eastside, uh, East River Park. And we basically rebuilt it eight feet high, like almost three meters taller. There's a huge kind of flood defense in it and there's a load of new little bridges and it's quite a major project mm -hmm. that's under construction now. And I was like, featured in, well, the project was featured in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And then I was pictured in the back because we did loads of public engagement. And I was getting shouted at by, by people because everyone was against it, even though it was defense, because a lot of people didn't believe in climate change mm -hmm. at the time. And they didn't like how we were having to, you know, remove their park for a few years before we built a new one. And, uh, but it was a, eventually kind of won them over with pretty, it's pretty cool design. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, going back in next month so i'll finally be able to see it and kind of what they're doing but that right. was what really then got me into sustainability because we was working with 
all the government officials figuring out how high does sea level really need to be because of climate change. And we're realizing that all of the best estimates from USGS or NASA were saying were almost completely wrong because there were sea levels are rising way faster than like twice as fast as we thought five years ago. Mm-hmm. So we were having to like keep edging up the flood defense because it was taking, well, we started in, it was started in 2012 after Hurricane Sandy and we're now sort of 10 years later and it's only being built now. And the flood uh, sea levels are rising way faster than we thought. So we're having to kind of like itch it up. And then you start to realize, oh, we're in a kind of a serious problem mm. with climate change because even if we're building these flood defenses for Manhattan, which is the richest country, richest city in the richest country, uh, we can't even try and defend like some of the richest sort of neighborhoods. And let alone what could have been done with Brooklyn and Queens, you know, we was only f- could only focus really on Manhattan. And you start to realize what we're even going to do with the rest of the city. Yeah, a lot of it is about one to two million people are probably going to be underwater by 2050. And if we don't, you know, reduce carbon emissions, but to net zero, mm-hmm. and at the moment we're kind of way off target. Yeah. So this is huge issue, not just with what we do with climate. Um, but how we adapt the built environment. So I, we then also worked on another project with the UN to kind of fix that, which mm-hmm. is to design floating cities. Mm-hmm. So we uh, designed with MIT and all the best engineers in the world, how could you build a floating city in case you can't build flood defenses, you have, to, you have climate refugees. And so we developed that and you can, it was kind of pretty highly publicized. And now we're building the first prototype in Busan in Korea, so uh, in okay. South Korea, and they're going to build because they've got a really bad housing crisis anyway. So they're basically building platforms in mm-hmm. the sea or in the in the river, and that is kind of one solution as, as sea levels go up. And we presented it to the UN, and it's like a whole actual you know, possible thing. Uh, but it kind of gets it's a bit sad when we realise that we're just going to have to be abandoning the cities. Mm. That, that's that's the point. Is that these pl- these platforms will rise and then the cities that we it's know now lost, will be yeah. abandoned. Mm-hmm. And if, if we don't do anything and you kind of realize, oh, we're in a bit sort of dire straits yeah. when that is, there's about what, 500 million people in the world at risk of these sea level rise. And currently there's no other solution other than to abandon kind of ship, unless we do something pretty drastic to stop, uh, stop climate change. And, yeah, so then I came back to the UK mm-hmm. <laughs> and with this new kind of found worry and uh, was starting to think you realised how many of our cities are at risk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was yeah. realised, wow, Boston, Lincolnshire is the least of our worries. <laughs> like, like New York's not, can't even do anything. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, fundamentally, it's got to be a bit like a holistic solution of how we can like reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And I continued to work at the Archangels Group uh, in London, and then we worked on some super sustainable, like net zero projects, like at the at the very cutting edge of like any construction on Earth. So that's like uh, NASA uh, Moon Base, mm-hmm. or well, actually that's not on Earth, but then the uh, or Neon. So mm-hmm. we were like worked on most of those projects and was doing a lot of the net zero cities out there, and they're really pushing the limits. So, so these are ones in Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, probably see the the line is quite popular, but mm-hmm. Big didn't do that one in particular. 
but there's the Oxygen, which is like a net zero industrial city, also floating, half floating, where there's a lot of agriculture. Um, and they kind of desalinate a lot of the water, mm -hmm. create a lot of green hydrogen. Uh, and, and then there's a big port there because it's very close to the Suez Canal. And that's their industrial hub that will feed the line and feed uh, Riyadh. So, and th those are really pushing the limit on what you could do with urban agriculture, mm -hmm. what you could do with green hydrogen, having like a building a city from scratch that's seven kilometers wide of like, how would you go about it? What is the best way? What's the most sustainable way? Um, and they're also wanting to move away from oil. So mm -hmm. that's the whole reason of, of Neon is they know that if the whole world goes net zero, oil's not going to be that useful anymore. And they're trying to diversify uh, eventually. And they also have this triple win mm -hmm. where they're currently using mainly oil and they're using it at cost. So they're not making any money off of it. So the quicker that they get to net zero by using solar, because they've got a lot of solar or hydrogen, they can free up the oil to sell mm -hmm. everywhere else for a higher, for you know, a profit. So they've got a massive incentive to get to net zero, well, in the cities as quickly as possible. So they're really advancing in terms of uh, their investment in hydrogen and green hydrogen and, and solar. And at the moment when the rest of the world is kind of slowing construction and kind of a bit on the fence about mm -hmm. net zero, they're the ones who have the cash to just plow ahead and keep building these cities. And as quickly as we were designing them, they were building them. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as you design the layout, there's a guy out there with diggers and you can see it now with the line. Yeah, like you carving think, through the rock. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You think it's ridiculous, it's like 170 kilometers long, uh, 200 miles, uh, 200 meters wide, 500 meters high. It's like, there's, there's no way that, if you're trying to say that build that in the UK, it would it takes centuries. But there, they're just like, they're out there with diggers already doing it. And they don't even know what, what it's going to look like fundamentally. <laughs> they just know it's in the line, it's yeah. 200 meters it's long, big, yeah. just, just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't mess about and mm. they've got the cash. They're not having to, they get an investment and there's some loans, but fundamentally they have trillions of dollars mm. just in the bank that they've accrued through decades of supplying 10% of the world's oil supply. And uh, yeah, if, if they can kind of do it first and prove maybe hydrogen works or, or fusion or like floating cities can work and they're putting the investment in, we can kind of, well, we're doing a lot of like, big and uh, we as in like the UK and, mm -hmm. and US and the world is actually all kind of developing these systems. Uh, we can learn a lot from yeah, their investment. It's like the test bed, basically. Yeah, it's like mm -hmm. a huge living labs. Mm -hmm. Like all these cities from scratch, we're at free roam to design them with 15 minute cities or to have fully autonomous vehicles, have VTOLs, so everything's like vertical transport, mm -hmm. drone delivery, like all the cutting edge tech, because the regulation is you know, quite loose so they can make it however you want. So all the stuff that we wished, oh, we could wish we could try this in London, but obviously they're a bit on apprehensive until it's done somewhere else. Mm -hmm. There it's a test bed where you can be like, oh, we want to see if we can do vert vertical takeoff. Yeah. And they would actually fund it or help people do it and obviously there's no taxes there there's huge government incentives um so it's it's, it's getting pretty evolved mm. and uh, it makes there's that construction is still going on where things are slowing down here so that that was really kind of eye-opening experience designing all of that and having because at university you're taught i'll do some crazy 
projects now, write your own brief now because you won't get a chance in practice. You'll yeah. just be designing, you know, like a warehouse in mm -hmm. uh, or something. Leads or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Whereas here it's like design a whole city from scratch and the budget is basically unlimited. Mm -hmm. And whatever technology you can imagine, you, you can create it. And then, uh, and it will be built within a few years. They've had this 2030 vision and it's under construction and they'll get something out there. And the industrial city makes sense because it's actually got a got a function, and it will, I think that's going to work. They've got visions on loads of loads of stuff all over the place, mm -hmm. but I think that one's makes the most financial sense. And mm -hmm. I think they're already selling off a lot of the plots, and they're doing multiple stuff, like may have multiple of these floating cities and stuff. So it's really um, really kind of impressive. And then I learned a lot from that in terms of what cutting edge of what is possible with construction mm. and uh, also trying to think how we could you know try and use that methodology or to solve our own problems here um, and yeah so at big uh, it was really the the place where people would come to us to, to solve these massive issues of diversifying from oil or from you know, building a moon base, building floating cities. But no one was really coming to us saying, because like, we were paid as a service. It wasn't like we did it on a, our own. It's startups coming to us. And then I was thinking, you know, from my perspective and here's like, everyone's talking about the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. and everyone's talking about con construction, productivity, flatlining, and uh, you know, how can we build houses cheaper and make them net zero, mm -hmm. all sort of stuff. And no one was kind of coming to us uh, asking like how would we do that it was always you know how do we build a moon base or something or how do we build huge cities in the desert it's like mm -hmm. oh no one was tackling some of the smaller scale stuff here which is like probably the less uh like big crazy stuff yeah and it's like we might as well get the basics right so i kind of that's when i founded off-grid works mm -hmm. as in a way that we could build affordable off-grid type housing uh, at scale and then took the same methodology and everything I'd learned from building at this colossal scale and working with all these world leading experts in every single field and the network that I gained from it to put that into a solution for designing uh, fixing the whole housing crisis and building houses houses cheaper so that was also coming off the back of me simultaneously doing some freelancing in mm -hmm in like housing. So I was building houses like the one at the back mm -hmm. and there's one to the side, there's three on this side mm -hmm. and then others in the area. I was kind of learning a lot about just building on that small scale and how we could apply this massive holistic scale thinking of like global level thinking that we did at Bjarke Ingels Group to um, the kind of the small scale stuff. Uh, so yeah, that was <laughs> a kind of a relatively brief summary of how we get to me then starting the company and trying to inventing this solution mm -hmm. to make housing cheaper and uh, quicker to build and sustainable and then how we can now um, in that process of bringing that technology to market mm -hmm. and whereas before we we're always just developing these technologies like as mercenaries for for um yeah 
for he was guns for hire for startups who would come and like the floating cities was funded by oceanics and then like a floating city startup mm-hmm. and it or like icon with a 3d printing they would always come to us and say how how do you make 3d printed housing work how do you make floating cities work and then we'd figure it out and they would take our idea and then turn it into a billion dollar company where i just cut out the middleman and was like oh why can't we just do that yeah, why can't I do that? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But it was a weird thing as an architect. You didn't have the business acumen mm-hmm. to think. You didn't think like that because we were just pure designers and yeah. problem solvers. Yeah. And no one was thinking, oh, what if we just do ourselves? So I did an MBA mm-hmm. on this as well um, through Quantic, who were really good. And at the time, I got a scholarship for that. And then I realized, oh, you, you know, I had no money, mm-hmm. but you could go through these ways of developing the business model, getting funding through grant funding, especially if it's got if it's super innovative and if mm-hmm. it's uh, for the public benefit, then you can get the support and the loans and uh, or in the investment, mm-hmm. you know, necessary. And you realize that you can make, bring these ideas to, to real world. So that was when I was like, okay, I'm going to take a risk and, and you know, do it rather than you can get, you know, caught up and it is kind of hard to leave the industry when it changes so much. And you can be like, oh, designing a, a moon base this week, this few months, and then a floating city the next few months, and then another city. And you're constantly being flown out business class by like the Saudis to meet in the palaces, and you feel yeah. like you're treated like a god or something walking yeah, around. Yeah. And then you give it up to be like, oh, I just want to try and you know make uh, these other things work instead. So you do get drawn into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the opportunity cost, I realized, was much bigger to not do this and have the try out trying to solve the housing crisis because if or um and the climate crisis mm-hmm. because uh, yeah <laughs> this is gonna go on forever but yeah well, well yeah i mean <laughs> my experience is fairly similar with that or the grandeur but well, uh, yeah <laughs> but um it, it's, it's difficult isn't it because you end up with lots and lots of projects you know like my my company we started four years ago we've done a hundred and 20 projects now like from varying scale from single houses to a driveway to you know we've just finished designing the first completely water neutral development we think in the world for 800 homes you know yeah yeah. like really quite interesting stuff but the trouble is you get these projects come through and you think oh that's really cool i'll just see that through and then you kind of end up stuck like just kind of doing the next thing and the next thing yeah um not that that's a bad thing um but i think we're fairly similar in the sense that there are these bigger issues and you want to have as big an impact as you can on tackling these challenges. Yeah. So you kind of have to get to a point where you think, actually, you know, is this something I want to do forever? Mm. Um, yes or no, or maybe, but maybe it's actually that with something else. And then how do you tie those things together and bring yeah. the various ideas and solutions you have together to try and come up with something more innovative and something where you can support yourself doing the range mm. of things that you want to do and do it in a mutually supportive manner. Yeah. Um, and that's the real sort of challenge, I think. It's true. Because I think the weird thing is it was this call to arms kind of with the impetus of, especially with sustainability, mm. and then working on those like those big global scale projects where we're like, how do we even fix this? And you realise the challenge that we're up against. Yeah. And also the consequences of if we do nothing. Uh, it, I was kind of in that position. I always say it's, it reminds me of like when... Uh, in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban at the end where he's like thinking he thinks it's his dad who's the one who cast the Patronus basically mm. and he's kind of 
looking around, went and then realised it's himself. Mm. It was kind of that weird moment where I was in the industry working at the highest levels with all the governments, and then you kind of think, waiting around like, what? Nobody's doing anything. Yeah, you, absolutely. You yeah. kind of like, oh, we sat here. Um, everyone's talking about we've got to hit net zero targets, mm -hmm. and like, forty percent of emissions are building, twenty percent is embodied. And even when we've been on these GBIPs, talk to people about how we're we going to tackle embodied energy and there's 10% of global emissions. Nobody has a clue. Absolutely, yeah. And, and then even when it was in the industry, and we talked to people, there was, there was nobody. There was mm. no, we worked with all the, the best entrepreneurs, worked with like Elon Musk or, or, or Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, all these guys. And it's like nobody, there was, there's no one actually tackling this fundamental issue. And then I kind of thought, oh, well, maybe I'll have a go. Well, no, well, yeah, completely agree with you. I think um, this is kind of my observation as well and partly why I decided to go out on my own because I was mm -hmm. looking at these problems and, you know, I wasn't at the same level, but I was ended up representing the UK on the World and European Council for Landscape. So I was yeah, meeting yeah. a lot of big urban designers and seeing all these large landscape projects and meeting lots of architects and sort of looking at them going, individually, the things are great, but like holistically, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And... Um, like a lot of the work we're doing now on, on water, which is why I was on the GBIP, mm. you know, there's loads of new technologies coming, great, but the technology itself is not the solution. It's part of a much wider solution that actually creates like a sustainable system. And without that sustainable system, you're just, you know, putting a plaster on the wound, you know, you're not actually yeah. healing it or dealing with any major problem. Yeah, and yeah. it's still not sort of joined up enough. It's all kind of half-arsed in a way, you know, yeah. um, or people don't have that sort of forethought that actually, yes, this is great, but actually we need to be thinking beyond that and how does that then tie into what sits next to it and then how does that tie into the next thing? Yeah, and you yeah. can easily get sort of overwhelmed. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of the, the, the problem, especially when it comes to the climate. Um, you know, I've, I've started, start, loosely started writing a book called Ignoring the Climate Crisis okay. because it's a massive, massive crisis, yeah. but people can't grasp it. Mm. And even at high level, I've, I've spoken to many people at senior sort of levels where they just don't seem to get it. And they're sort of still going, yeah, yeah as you said, are oh, there be a technology that solves it? Oh, we don't need to worry about this policy or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, if we don't even have the policy basis correct, yeah. we're stuffed, you know, yeah, and yeah. we've got to sort of think differently. And as you said earlier, actually really well, sort of the lateral connections are really key. Yeah. And I think in a way, the lateral connections are more important because you build a much stronger base than if you just go vertically. Yeah, um, yeah. And that kind of is where I've seen that my observation has been in a lot of the failings. Yeah. So that's partly why I started to, you know, do more stuff. It's true because there's those myself. fundamental things like even say with the housing crisis, mm. even if we said, oh, let's just build a load more homes. And even if we had yeah. the technology, like I said, we'd come up against the problem we don't have enough water yeah. to theoretically even that's sustain it. them. And there's a whole issue anyway, like 8 billion people, maybe 10 billion in the world by 2050. We're currently using 2.5 Earths worth of resources. When there's 10 billion people, we're going to be using even more. So there's not even, we, we can't physically be doing things in, in the same way. And there's certain issues that will probably come up that we're not even aware of. Like mm -hmm. if uh, like like water's becoming a much bigger issue now. Yeah, well, it might be worth just giving a couple of examples. So yeah. we were talking earlier. So what the water ones, quite a key one so um with, especially when it comes to things like hydrogen yeah. so for instance the uk's hydrogen strategy mm. is based along the thames yeah. which is an area under extreme water stress um so we can't really abstract water from the thames because there's already a lack of water available in the area 
um, and we need that for a lot of industry and things as well. So there's a big water availability issue. Then there's the energy that's required and we have an energy issue. There's just not enough energy um, and the grid can't take more draw. Yeah. So that's a really big problem. So actually, is hydrogen really viable in that location? Uh, probably not. It's probably more viable in Saudi Arabia, where they've got, they mm. can introduce more renewable energy closer to where um, they'll be needing it. Yeah. And then also desalinate water and export it more effectively. Yeah. yeah. So that's not to knock us having that industry, but it's just quite a big flaw yeah. in having the industry. And then hydrogen anyway, you know, we're talking about having it in the mix, but we basically have to replace the entire gas grid. Mm. So, and then you look at electric cars, is another example of like, this is a good example of a technology being hailed as a major solution. Yeah. And I, I was at an urban design event recently mm -hmm. and they were saying, how do we design cities for electric cars? And I was saying, we don't want to design cities for electric cars. We want to design cities for no cars. Yeah, you know, that's the, where the ambition has to be. You're just replacing a technology that's causing loads of problems with a newer technology, which does exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to get the, um, you know, the, the minerals and things, I think it's something ridiculous like, I can't remember the exact number, but let's say a hundred of more of the world's biggest mine, mm. which we currently don't, you know, we've got one major mega mine. Yeah, there's a hundred yeah. more of those globally yeah. just to get the resources we need. So it's actually not viable. So, yeah. and that's not to say there isn't this major problem that has to be solved, but it just kind of demonstrates that that thinking isn't the thinking we need to actually solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's like a, yeah, just like you said, a plaster. Because mm. even electric vehicles or vehicle, like cars aren't actually that, polluting in general in comparison to like 1% yeah. global emissions or something, mm -hmm. not even that, in comparison to something like planes, or well, they're not, not even that, even planes, the aviation industry is only 2.5%. Well, did, did you know the current hydrogen produced, mm. um, which is because most of the hydrogen is not green hydrogen, mm. um, it's gray or blue hydrogen. Yeah. The current emissions used in producing that is more than the entire global aviation industry. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, what are they solving? So yeah, even, yeah. Exactly, so even if you had hydrogen-powered yeah. planes right now, yeah, it's still it's, incredibly demanding. And I mean, one of the guys on the trip who I can't remember their name, uh, one of the guys who was on the GBIP, they mm. designed a new hydrogen boiler, yeah. and they sourced all the hydrogen they could in the UK, and they could only run it for something like six minutes. Was oh, it? Really? They could run. I don't. I didn't hear what you said. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's six hours, but even yeah. so, that's all the hydrogen they could source. So again, not to knock it because it's a new industry and it's definitely an industry we need because it's great for shipping and HGV and all, all yeah, that heavy kind of thing and, and stuff. Yeah, big boilers and generators and stuff. But there are like fundamental flaws at the moment in the thinking perhaps of how to sort of move it ahead. Yeah, because even just the storage of it, even if uh, if you said, okay, we could get hydrogen planes, you know, you can't, you'd have to get it within the fuselage of the physical thing. Mm. You know, you've got to compress it so much, you've got to keep it at a temperature. Uh, just, God, yeah, God forbid there's an accident. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. You know, you've basically got a flying hydrogen bomb or something yeah. going around. Same That's with yeah, any of the fuel tankers and stuff. I mean, electric is one way with that. One option is like methanol, mm. which is another thing that Aramco was, was really pushing, interestingly, was they were putting a lot of money into developing methanol so that they could, as, as byproducts from some of their hydrogen plants you can get. So they would, um, that, but also you can just get it from digesters or from, uh, you know, all the waste, if you got it from farming and all those aspects. But it's all about circular economy type things. Like I think we've been in a linear economy and actually things have changed so rapidly mm. in probably 20 years. I remember when I was growing up, recycling wasn't even really a thing. You didn't have multiple wheelie bins and stuff. It was yeah. just like, 
uh, put about, he was trying to get people to even put it in the bin. Yeah. It was a challenge, you know, littering. And now, now recycling is pretty widespread and pretty robust, but that's still a step away from like full circular economy. Yeah, indeed. And we see that, well, I worked on a, the Amazon headquarters in Berlin, which well, was the new tallest tower there. And we worked with a company called Concular out in Berlin, and they're trying to fix the problem a bit in the industry, in the construction, because you sometimes get a, you might demolish a building and a lot of it maybe goes into a landfill because mm. you can't find uses for all of it. But they're actually would go in and assess all the stuff that's going to get binned and it goes onto a marketplace. Mm-hmm. And then you as an architect can go in and say, oh, I want to use these um, chairs or these like wall panels that are coming available and you know when it's coming available and then they can strip that out and come to you. So they're kind of mm. linking that up. So it's kind of a circular, but that's a kind of a brand new thing. In most industry isn't as sophisticated. You probably just indeed, like you said, you could you can try and link. When was doing the cities holistically, you design it from scratch. You can connect everything up quite nicely uh, in like a closed loop. But then, when we look at adapting existing cities, like it said trying to put hydrogen in the Thames. You might think, oh, that's good because we've got loads of fresh water or something there. Uh, but then it's going to even decimate the Thames or mm-hmm. or the hydrogen's not enough and and then when you look further downstream you realise oh what are we gonna use all that hydrogen for? It's not that useful and uh and then you've kind of committed yourself and then you start to think, oh maybe we should have just put all that money into solar or something. And uh yeah it's 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 weird because the, the people making the decisions, like top level government, maybe you know, they're fundamentally just trying to get reelected. And maybe their their cycles can only be in a few years, and um, you need kind of like a huge long term vision. If we're going to say like twenty fifty goals, you got to be. It's at the moment that seems so far away yeah. that you're like, oh, we'll wait to the government that's in power in twenty forty six, and then they'll have to be the ones who are to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas at that point, sea levels will be a meter or two meters higher than they are now well i was going to say what what basis i was going to ask you this later yeah. but what is the basis you were well what was the level you were looking at for sea level rise what you were, were you trying to accommodate just yeah. to go back to that other point earlier it, yeah so in new york it was getting it worst case scenario by 2050 it's like one to two meters potential sea level rise which it doesn't sound too bad but their problem is the hurricanes so as you get as increased sea level as sea levels rise and a lot of the sea level rise is due to water temperature increase mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of the models were based on deep water flows and recycling yeah. of the water but actually they were finding it was quite tranched in layers and the water at the top was getting hotter quicker than the, at the bottom which meant it was expanding more mm-hmm. which meant you get a huge that, that's what was causing a lot of sea level rise increase and then when you get deeper hotter water you get a lot more hurricanes so that's why we're starting to see a lot more storms in the gulf that's why like uh california was hit by like hurricane for the first time in a long time mm-hmm. see it all the time in miami and uh sandy hurricane sandy in 2012 that was the thing that kicked off rebuild by design and 50 billion dollars of damage and they had to shut down the stock exchange and it was like catastrophic like like 100 dead and uh, that was mainly um, that was a superstorm wasn't even a hurricane but as the sea levels get worse then you're more likely to see the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So is a superstorm not as bad as a hurricane then? Yeah. That sounds like they've worded that the wrong way around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that maybe there's a levels of, there's a normal storm where you could be like, oh, it could be in the UK. Mm. And then I think a superstorm is just below a category one hurricane. Mm. So a superstorm is still very, very bad, but a hurricane is like really, really way worse. And mm. you can, um, so the, hur- the, the winds weren't even that bad, but it also means the pressure different is, is worse and then you get storm surges mm. so as the hurricane goes up it, um, it drives all the sea sort of in front of it doesn't it yeah, yeah. and it, it creates even higher sea level rise so we so the sea level itself is bad but if you get a storm surge on top of the sea level rise you're going to get like catastrophic flooding mm. like all over and there's other issues of yeah you might not get they're quite all they're all high rise so you're not really going to be affected in your apartment but all the sewage and stuff like yeah. that is flowing into the Hudson and once you increase the pressure the sewage starts coming back up the pipes out into your living room mm. or into your toilets and then into your living room which isn't very good if you paid several hundreds of millions for your you know your flat mm. and um and then on uh on, yeah so the reason why this sounds like oh it's just worst case scenario but the Hudson itself has a very deep trench in it Mm-hmm. And it kind of that's what draws the hurricanes. They they go up the east coast. If they keep going, they'll always be drawn up the Hudson Trench. So New York is particularly vulnerable if sea levels rise and get get warmer, and they they keep going up there. So uh, yeah, one thing is sea levels rising um, just naturally as water temperature mm-hmm. increases. But there's these other trigger events which would happen anyway. So if we get to a two degrees increase in temperature they predict that will break off the West Antarctic ice shelf. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, it's not supported by land. It's just kind of sat on the uh, water and the hot water keeps tunneling underneath. And at any point, that huge shelf could just snap off, go into the water and just kind of melt. And it's colossal. And even that itself could create like well, like half to a meter's worth of sea level increase. And it's we, pretty we, we have a podcast with um, Jonathan Porritt who yeah. used to um, be an advisor to the government on sustainability yeah. and uh, climate. And um, we have a sort of segment where we talk to him about sea level rise. Oh, yeah. And he sort of, because uh, it was on his book, we talked about his, his new book as well. And um, we were talking about that, and it's truly terrifying the extent mm. of potential sea level rise. I think it's 60 metres is, oh. is the potential, like, far extent of it. But, but they reckon that by sort of, you know, 2300. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. really not that far away, you know. When you're thinking, oh well, it's only f- a few generations, isn't it? Yeah, that's and it's three generations. And as an urban planet, well, just to look at all, most cities are all on watercourses that have existed. Usually, anything beyond, well, pretty much every single city is on a on a watercourse of some sort yeah. for for trade or on the sea. So a lot of our population is under there. So you're like, oh, okay, sixty meters, you could maybe go hike up a mountain. It's yeah. like what about all of this all of our civilization it's like that is truly kind of apocalyptic and mm. it's it could you could do something about it that's the thing like yeah if, if indeed. we if we can even if we got to like net zero right now we might be able to stop that two degrees increase in, in temperature rise and we you know whether it's um maybe naturally the, the earth will eventually warm over you know, thousands of years. But uh, like what we could do right now is at least stop that acceleration and it would buy us time. Even by 2300, you know, we could build new cities mm. for further inland if we kind of knew that that was happening. And the, the other flip side of 
net zero, which is technically our mission statement, is more about accelerating the age of abundance. So what people don't ultimately realise is if we can get to full net zero sustainability, you would get to a point where energy is so cheap that everything just becomes so negligibly expensive. Yeah. Because if you if you could pretty much power the whole earth on renewables, you know, you don't have to pay for it. It all comes from the sun, mm -hmm. theoretically. If, if you, basically everything's in solar and once you've built the infrastructure for solar and wind and tidal, it's just always going to be there. Yeah. And even once you've built fusion reactors. So at that point, you know, electricity would become super cheap. I was talking to a guy from Octopus Energy and he was saying how even their offshore wind, you know, it's maybe about three to five pence per kilowatt. That's how much it costs them to build the turbine. And they can currently sell it at the grid rate, whatever it's 30. And they're making huge markups because gas is so expensive, oil mm. is so expensive. And that's, that's how much the gas and the oil companies have to sell at to make money. But the wind and the solar is so, so insanely cheap. Well, this is it. And this is why policy is so important. I saw today, actually this morning on the news that, um, there's been a new round for bidding for offshore wind. Right, yeah. Um, and not one company's bid yeah, for the new contracts to build new offshore wind because the government has tried to um, squeeze, it. squeeze it as much as they can. Um, but they've just granted, you know, 100 more oil drilling yeah, licenses. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it does make you think what's really going on. But also the, the interesting thing is it's kind of that there is no one solution either. Mm. So, for instance, Singapore, again, going back to the Singapore trip, that was really interesting because Singapore basically have had to hedge their bets on hydrogen. Now they don't have the water for hydrogen because they've already got a big water problem, which is why we were there. Mm. Um, but basically they want to sort of um, bring in, I think, well, they want to sort of bring in hydrogen and sort of trade it on, I think was kind of, as I sort of understood it. Right. But the reason they're looking at hydrogen to sort of power the city as well is because they're on the equator and that means they have no wind, basically. So wind right. um, generation just doesn't really work in Singapore. Okay. Um, also, they have a problem where it's very, very cloudy a lot of the time. Mm. So actually they can't use solar either. Yeah. So they don't have wind and their days are slightly shorter, I think, as well. So mm. they have, um, mm. is it shorter or longer on the equator? I can't remember anyway, but for it's whatever the reason. It's the same, isn't it? But it's, they, it's shorter and yeah, they, they They can't use solar. So basically wind and solar is out, which yeah. basically, and they don't have any geothermal potential either or they have very, very limited geothermal potential. Yeah. So basically their only real option for, for renewables is, is hydrogen. Mm. Um, and also they're one of the biggest shipping hubs in the world, so they want to convert the ships to yeah. hydrogen too. So And you can't use tidal because of the ships. Yeah, and, but you can't use tidal because of the equator. Oh, right, yeah, because um, less movement. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, so basically they have a, they're kind of stuck. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're kind of investing all their net zero energy yeah, not as in actual energy, but government energy, yeah. people manpower. energy, in manpower into um, into hydrogen. But you know, there it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, but they, they're looking to use desalination, and yeah, they're yeah. building um, uh, what is it? The refineries, uh, energy recovery plants, and stuff like that. And that waste energy will be used to then produce hydrogen and stuff. Yeah. So they're kind of looking at it in an, in an alternative way. But how do they power the hydrogen through the? Um, a waste to energy plant. Ah, oh, okay, right. Yeah, that's what one of the guys on the trip was looking at, I think. True. They have to capture the CO2 from the yes. waste to energy. Yeah, indeed, yeah. So it's, it's, 
nothing's that straightforward. But yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> they've kind of got a different sort of range of problems, but they're Fort- really motivated because yeah. they're already at sea level, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've been right up against them. Yeah, so they also kind of want to be a test bed to help sort of innovate and drive this stuff forward. True. I think in so. some cases it's, it's sort of, yeah, as a city state, they have the power to yeah, look at it holistically and be like, okay, we can do everything in there just for us specifically. Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, and they're not that big. You could theoretically build up flood defences if required. It's harder when you have you know, a whole country, like, mm. like a, the whole of, a, if it was Japan or something. But yeah, the Singapore, maybe the, I think what would be interesting for them is probably by the time they've done it, someone would have cracked fusion to an extent that they would probably be okay. It's yeah. an interesting one. But for, yeah, a lot of other people, there's, um, yeah, you, you, you've got to do something. If you can do something, you might as well. Mm-hmm. You know, for them, they're in a very unique position where they can't really do, there's not that much. But a lot of places, even say like with Saudi, where they don't have much water, there's a bit of wind, but they do have a lot of solar. So there's usually one or another. You can kind of, kind of balance it. So yeah, I, th- I think that was one of the things that we were advocating for as well. Like if you could link up a lot of the grids anyway. So maybe at what some point, Singapore could just buy their electricity from Malaysia or... Yeah, but the, yeah, they're planning that sort of um, East Asia, well, Asia-Pacific um, energy grid, aren't they? But they're, but, yeah. but they're, well, that's, part, that's partly what Singapore is leading on. They're laying all these pipelines yeah, throughout yeah, the region. Yeah. But um, that makes sense. But, but, but I, th- I, think it's, I think what people don't realise as well is the amount of energy that's required for all the different processes because mm-hmm. you've got to have the energy to desalinate. Yeah. But then you've also got to have the energy to then power the electrolysis yeah. Um, of, of the actual production of the hydrogen. Yeah. So, and those energy demands are enormous. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can sometimes question, yeah, what, how, yeah, what the actual output really is. It's almost yeah. one for one. The amount of energy currently that you're putting in, especially if it's obviously coming from dirty industries. But yeah, if you could have like solar. Yeah, well, that, well that's sense. why hydrogen's so bad at the moment in terms yeah. of like polluting to get it. So, which, which really raises the question of it's got to be somewhere where either you have like nuclear energy, as you said, where they're building new nuclear reactors once yeah. they crack it. Yeah. So that's another 20 years <laughs> before yeah, yeah. that comes in. Yeah. Um, but places, you know, like Morocco, I think Morocco is looking to do something at it. Um, Saudi. Yeah. Um, there's another, oh, there's another country that's looking at it massively in, um, I think it's West Africa. There's a West African country that wants to become the leader in hydrogen. And they've just invested massively into it. Yeah. I can't think where it is. But, um, but also the, Obviously, there's then the, the challenge of you've got to ship all the hydrogen everywhere. But compared to big electrical grids, you, you, I think they lose 10% of energy through, through transmission. So oh, yeah, there's also kind of like weighing that up in terms of how do some of these super grids work? Because there was the big European one planned, which had energy from Morocco right. being piped uh, into yeah. Spain. But the cost and loss of transmission energy mm. through, the, through the cable network was so, is so great that it becomes not economically viable or something I was reading the other day. Yeah. So yeah. there are still quite a lot of big challenges with actually connecting stuff up. Yeah. That's c- interestingly why we, that, the, yeah, the other angle of, of the of off-grid works, mm. kind of, it's because the, the nature of why it's called off-grid works is saying if we could have more decentralized energy production anyway, and even in terms of, yeah, like water and uh, electricity and heat and then, uh, food as well, so we're putting all those systems you know, into the buildings and all the developments, so that you don't have to be 
drawing from the grid and then you don't have all these problems of huge lossy cables and building all the pylons and mm -hmm. having to ship it all around. That is probably the only solution that we could do right now as an architect to be like, if we're designing these new cities, it's a lot easier that they're all self-sufficient buildings Absolutely. themselves. Well, I think, I think that's the key and that comes back to what we're doing as well because mm. we're doing that with like the water grid but yeah. also looking mm. at it on, on the energy side because if you don't have to have so we use water as an example because it's because it's what we're doing at the moment yeah but um if you don't have to connect into the sewerage system one you're not putting any stress on all these water companies that are already releasing loads of sewage yeah. into the network and um and two you're saving cost then on the cost of, of the development yeah um and saving money for the homeowners because they're not having to use as much water mm. and energy yeah. is exactly the same you know we know the energy grid is at capacity basically not in terms of this goes back to that energy point I was making earlier. Yeah. It's not just about the availability of energy. It's about getting the energy to where it needs to go because yeah. the grid can't take any more um, charge through its system, basically, in a lot of areas. Yeah. So actually, it has to be off-grid. Otherwise, you have to upgrade the grid. So, yeah. you know, and the same with gas, with hydrogen. To put hydrogen through the gas grid, you have to upgrade the gas grid because the molecules are so fueled that they'll escape through the fixings. Yeah. So all the fixings okay. of the gas grid have to be replaced, yeah. which is a massive infrastructure task. So again, how viable is it? So yeah, really, yeah, yeah. these new developments have to be off-grid, exactly yeah. as you say, um, yeah. for all of these things to be truly sustainable and save money, not just in the installation stage, but the longer-term ongoing costs for homeowners. Yeah, exactly. Because it, yeah, it's a double win, even on our side, because then it's like... Yeah, you get a house. You can imagine if you could buy a house where all of the needs were met and you didn't have to pay utility bills. Even you could theoretically sell excess energy that you're producing back to the grid or to your neighbour who mm -hmm. wants to use more of it, who's trying to charge a Tesla or something. And then your house becomes more of an asset where you're not yeah. just paying out a mortgage every week or you can actually be covering the mortgage costs with the energy that you're producing. Uh, you know, you don't have any... They don't have to worry about you know, an apocalyptic scenario where there's you know no electricity or no not enough water to go around. You don't have to worry about hosepipe bands. You've got like yeah. enough you know rainwater, and uh, and then on the other side you've got even you can even produce food once you've got excess energy. You can grow food inside. You've got enough water supply, um, and you can get even that cheaper. Yeah. So, I mean, our eventual mission as well is that if you could live that, then you'd you'd almost, you know, all of your basic needs would theoretically be met by your house. You know, it doesn't have to be, okay, I've got to get my house and I've got to pay electricity that we've just seen going through the roof and then you've got all this. And just to survive as a human being is super expensive, which is kind of a bit, you know, against just nature in mm. general. They just have to pay so much money to survive. Where actually off-grid construction and design will be, uh, will kind of be quite liberating that. As once you've got the house and that house is producing enough energy to cover almost your mortgage repayments, then you can, uh, uh, you know, you'd be pretty pretty sound. Yeah, so, absolutely. And that's not that far away. That's the funny thing. That's what annoyed me a bit in practice. It's like the technology exists now. Yeah. And solar is becoming so cheap and so efficient and the batteries are becoming better and uh, stuff like rainwater harvesters or... And, um, air hustle heat pumps and MVHR is getting so much better that you could do it yeah. it's just in general a lot of the developers you know they, they don't have to because the policy's not there yet so you're not forced to have to pay this little bit extra mm -hmm. but it doesn't it's currently not costing that much more like the house 
behind doesn't cost that much more than a normal house, but it's it's almost net zero. Mm-hmm. And the one that we're doing next door is almost off grid, and probably in a few years' time, there'll almost be no cost difference because instead of putting a boiler in and paying for oil, that'd be a lot more expensive. You can have you know huge amounts of solar. So, Absolutely. And then when you get to that kind of world where you can scale that up to even a city size thing then um kind of going back to your point before uh what's going to happen is we'll eventually get to a no car world that 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 is fundamental like change of things when we get robo taxis and mm. full self driving you'll just have a gig economy type thing where you could park your car and then the car can go do taxiing and you know you well, don't have to worry su- about it surprisingly they do it a lot in russia Really? Yeah, it really surprised me when I was in St. Petersburg last. You yeah. just, they're, they're like zip car or something. Yeah. And you just, you see one there, you just open the app, scan the car, hop in it, off you go. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and it's true. So you can get that now in uh, in London, but the, the point being that the car wouldn't be parked anymore. You know, even if you have cars, the cars yeah. can constantly go out. They can be making you money anyway. They'll be going off picking people up. They could just be robo taxis just as you buy them. And that will basically mean you have all these car parks sat underneath all these buildings in London and everywhere that are just empty and, yeah. and useless. And they're too small, like too low down to be converted into flats and they're underwater, underground, so they're a bit annoying. But we're kind of saying that you, eventually you could convert that to urban agriculture. Mm. Could, they're perfect for farming. Once we've got huge amounts of clean energy, they can power the LED systems that grow the plants and the pump system. And aeroponics means you don't need that much water. and. Uh, you know, convert that to food. And then once you've kind of got enough solar and got enough wind, you could almost make cities very kind of self-sustaining. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can massively reduce the costs of, of, of living, basically. Of, there will be no utilities. The costs of food will be next to nothing because it's just growing everywhere. Yeah, and you're de-risking it as well. Yeah. Because you haven't got the risk of drought or whatever yeah. else it may be. You don't have to use fertilizers, it's all organic. Yeah. Um, you don't have to yeah, use pesticides. I mean, uh, crops a lot quicker, you have perfect conditions all the time. And so, but it also frees up so much land for yeah. like ecological restoration. I think it's something like the average if you took the average the footprint of the average supermarket mm. and turned it into aquaponics or hydroponics, yeah. Or aeroponics or wormaponics or whatever yeah. it may be. Yeah. Um, that is equivalent to about seven hundred acres. Of yeah. agricultural land yeah i bet it's true because so that was my final project for undergrad and that's where i got i was like it was in the reber exhibition and that was for a um a vertical farm and i did all the research and then that's funny i was supposed to go to mit to study urban agriculture because that was like the big new thing but i went to to cambridge instead but they were this that is like going to be a massive field we see the technology that is available and but weirdly as it had to be a holistic thing mm. because there's all this options of there's all this urban agriculture potential but when we was developing cities you have to know can we put it in there where you're going to put it you've got to know can we free up these car parks to put all this technology in and is that technology but at the same time we need to get the energy from somewhere because it's super high energy yeah. but it's all going to eventually you know fit into place you know once we're in a and, and renewable energy world and it's going to have huge amounts of energy in abundance we can then start kind of growing all these things and then like i said free up the uh all that farmland for re- regenerative farming or for uh growing trees basically mm. 
and so the farmers won't be out of the job they'll just be turning to foresters well it becomes it becomes a very different use like you know the green belt for instance like the green belt is a great policy for protecting and stopping the coalescence of cities and recycling of land yeah. but largely green belt was useless yeah. because the land isn't used for anything so actually if you can start taking that land out around cities and saying right mm. okay you know we're going to move your food production into the city yeah, so yeah. your land use is now changing that becomes ecotourism or ecological restoration or, or whatever mm. else so you're building more sort of community assets you're replacing that food production with a community asset. So you're building a more resilient community, but then that also can help protect the city from flooding and urban heat, heat island effect, all of those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So it's thinking about it from that perspective and as well. absorbing CO2. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, carbon, sucking that carbon back up. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that though we, we will eventually find a way, like a lot of it is kind of coming towards it. Yeah. But I think there was a couple of critical industries about um because energy is relatively could be dealt with and that was something that they talked about in singapore is that say 40 percent of buildings um 40 percent of global emissions are from buildings 29 percent 29 percent is about from operational energy mm -hmm. this is like i was saying could deal with with hydrogen or or uh, solar wind and then the problem is the embodied energy so that's the stuff that i'm we're also tackling because that's 11% yeah, of emissions so it's of global emissions so it's like four times worse than the than uh, the airline industry and a lot of that all comes from concrete for instance and that in itself is like 7% of global emissions and we're like addicted to concrete and it's the second biggest resource after water that is being used and uh, a lot of policies don't account for it so we, when I was on the other G bits like South Korea They'd never even heard of embodied energy. You know, they talk about what their net zero policy was, or they were developing these net zero homes, but they're all built from concrete. And it's like, well, uh, it's obviously not zero, net zero by our standards. Yeah. And then uh, Taiwan was the same. And a lot of those policies, they say, oh, we'll be 20, net zero by 2050, but they haven't accounted for that bit. And then, um, yeah, that's a very tricky thing to get rid of because even the nature of creating concrete, you have to break down the limes, uh, limestone into from calcium carbonate into just the, the calcium powder and you release the carbonate yeah, bit. through that process yeah. so you release the carbon dioxide through that process and then you do absorb a little bit going back through it but not all of it and that's like 50 percent of the amount so even if you could deal with the energy side you've still just the nature of creating concrete release it and uh you know you, you've got to kind of that it's kind of on the heads of of architects in a way and weirdly when i'm always looking at it uh you can kind of get to net zero concrete but it's going to be more expensive which means that all construction just the buildings come more expensive or um uh yeah i think that that's where a lot of the efforts going into like i was saying but nobody's really thinking about it kind of holistically mm. as in like why are we putting all our effort to try and create net zero concrete when 90% of concrete could just have been done in timber yeah, instead. Yeah, indeed. And then most people don't realise that. Oh, they think, oh, yeah, timber is more expensive now. But as concrete gets more expensive through the net zero, turning it to net zero, then it's going to make, it means that timber would be cheaper. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, uh, yeah, you, you really need to, everybody kind of looks at it from a we, massive... Th this is the trouble though. We need to kind of take angle. a step back and go, right, where do we want to end up? And how yeah. do we get there? Because... It, it's kind of like looking at all of these things in 
we look at everything in a, in, a, in a weird way. We kind of look at stuff in too much detail in some respects mm. because then you miss the bigger picture. And yeah. as you say, yeah, we'll solve this problem, but then you're not tackling with that other bit that sort of sits next to it here. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a funny old world. Yeah, because it's, it's an interesting consequence of just the modern world in general. People become more hyper-specialist. Mm. And it's, it's good because we need, we have such complex supply chains and everybody's got to do their bit. And, you know, they haven't even really touched on the, like consumer products where I like, think about what the effort that goes into creating a phone and it's all over the world and everything's been shipped around and everybody just has to be very good at creating their microchips mm. and you don't have to worry about, you know, what, what it looks like at the end. Um, but for, for net zero, it's, it, there's a lot of kind of, uh, even like ones that counterbalance themselves where when you start saying, oh, uh, we're gonna, yeah, like I said, use a lot more batteries. It's like where you're gonna get all the lithium from yeah. for that, or uh, if we're gonna use concrete. And what do you do with them after? Because we can't recycle a lot of them. Yeah. So. And that's what we talk about: this kind of a housing theory of everything paradox, and kind of back to the housing crisis type, or the housing affordability crisis. Is that, um, yeah, trying to create net zero homes and the future home standards coming in in two years' time and. If homes do become net zero, they will naturally become more expensive. But by their nature, you should, with existing, we say modern methods of construction, but they're not modern because they've been around for a long time. Hmm. I say that we're doing postmodern methods because it's like it's a little bit, a little bit step forward. But current modern methods of construction are way more expensive than even traditional, which most houses are built from. Which means if we're going to get net zero, houses will get more expensive. The housing crisis gets even worse, and that's. That's the other dilemma. Is like, how do we factor in the? the it's a, go get onto a whole ethical issue of how do we factor in the societal damage from climate change to the economic damage of the costs of kind of climate resiliency. Um, and there, there is. That's why we're looking at housing in particular, because this housing theory of everything is that a lot of socio-economic problems come from housing. Uh, so like like having proper affordable like not being able to afford your own home having to pay rent where you're like paying lots of money out all the time where you could have just been paying for a mortgage and the huge markup on homes compared to the fundamental intrinsic cost and uh it's like how how can we make sure that we're not exacerbating those issues so we also don't want to get to a net zero world where we're like yeah we've fixed it we're net zero but it's only for the the rich and everybody yeah. else who's like can't afford it is just kind of like even in well yeah sure i think at that point energy will be so cheap i think in this interim point we're going to be in an awkward situation where things are going to get more expensive because they're net zero and until energy is negligibly like worthless um things will get more expensive so that's why we came in with this new method of robotic construction which is way cheaper to build but it's way better quality and mm -hmm. way more robust and net zero all, all in one and it's only possible by looking at it holistically by looking at it at all the stakeholders within construction mm -hmm. so from an architect's point of view we always work with you know the client and the developer and the financer and you've got to think of everything like a deep dive so then you could have appreciation of something that fits into the industry because even we talked about 3D printing before, and it sounds 
kind of good in principle, but there's a lot of little bits where when you get down the line, it's like very hard to get insurance for. for mm -hmm. So if you wanted to build a 3D printing house now, it's very difficult to get insurance even for modern methods of construction, let alone 3D printing, where not a single one has existed for more than 10 years. And now we've got this problem with these concrete aerated buildings collapsing anyway at schools. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's going to be a long time before you can get a mortgage on that, like a bank to give you a 30 year mortgage on a 3D printed house. So a lot of them have to be sold at, at, with cash. So that doesn't help an affordability price. Mm -hmm. But yeah, people aren't looking at it holistically. You can be like, oh yeah, we're going to 3D print a house. And you go, like, oh, we'll do it. And you're like, oh, we can't get it insured and we can't get it mortgaged. Mm. So uh, yeah, it's like you have to look at every kind of step of the way and uh, try and kind of, instead of trying to shoehorn something in, it kind of has to look holistically and particularly in construction there's no that's why it's so bad and that's why emissions are so bad it's so fragmented mm -hmm. like even what was saying there's very few people who you know got so many specialist careers like engineer say engineer but they're actually like structural engineer environmental engineer and like a yeah. fire engineer so you've got to be yeah. like but that's the, that's the thing you have to say or yeah they're yeah. a structural engineer or a fire engineer you know it's, yeah, they, yeah. they don't they don't sort of do all of these things. If we're going to create or create these solutions, that these miracle solutions that fix climate change, you have to take into account like so many different things. It's got to be almost a global level effort. But obviously, the, politically, that's that's not going to happen. Uh, but from an entrepreneur's point of view, it's it's good to kind of bear in mind like that's why these GBIPs are really good. It's mm -hmm. like, you got to bring in like all this understanding from like, so many different kind of ways and a technology might work in one domain and not another domain so if you imagine trying to fix something like emissions in in a in house construction or building in general you can maybe create a solution that works well in dubai or, or saudi or, um, or or texas for instance where it doesn't rain but then you try and put that in a temperate climate where it's cold and then it's raining all the time it's like well then you can't it's hard to maybe use the robotics in a place where it's raining all the time or using 3D printing when it's raining and then the concrete is just going to disappear. Yeah. So it's, you need like, it does, I think there is a bit of a call to arms in a global effort, mm -hmm. but it's going to take, you know, every industry has to change to net zero, which is why, you know, you need a lot more entrepreneurs, a lot more people doing kind of entrepreneurial things, mm -hmm. creating all this industry. And that's actually part of, my course is business for architects and it's like a mini incubator where they uh the architects come on and i try and like we, we teach them all the issues in the world and like we're talking about now and then i kind of give them a little spark of inspiration which they can then run through in a business model and uh, a lot of them have really good problem solving and visualization skills and really good ideas but like i said before architects don't have the business acumen to back it up so there's lots of good ideas in the industry that never see the light of day because the people are just we're so fixated on our little siloed bit of design that we don't think oh we could go off into entrepreneurship yeah absolutely i mean landscape architects are much the same yeah you know the very landscape architects are good because they tend to have i would say a slightly broader view but the nature of what we do it tends mm. to be looking at more like how all these bigger things sort of tie together yeah, yeah. um it's a bit more more, more urban design -y really i suppose yeah um but people tend to be a bit more introverted and I find that that quite often 
could be stifled quite a lot of like the ideas that come forward as people a bit more trepidation right. about saying what they necessarily really think or yeah. um, proposing like these new things or, or setting up own businesses or things. So it's true. I think y it's interesting as well. Like you see those different like character traits through yeah. the different professions that people sort of migrate into, which can then cause their own sort of problems or or challenges to sort of overcome. True. Um, I was find it's just quite interesting to see how different people fit into these different categories and. Yeah. You can't generalise everybody the same, of course, but you do see like there tends to be more of like a certain char characteristics that go into that sort of specific area. Yeah, I think it's probably part of the HR policy, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Because yeah. I think that's when at, at big, it was like uh, they definitely you had to it helped to be more confident in what you're doing because if you're designing a whole city for like MBS or, mm. like, or you're working with you know. Elon Musk or someone then you have to be pretty self-assured like yeah this is what we're going to do mm. you're going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars on this thing and uh, You've be sure it's this is work. the right one yeah, yeah, they're not it. like are you sure this is the right way we should structure this city and you're like mm. well maybe it could be a square or something you're like yeah that's no, it's it. like we're doing it like this and it's going to be like that and mm. so yeah in that in those regions it is quite like dogged but mm. uh, yeah it, in that nature that's why a lot of you know, the, it depends on the technology they bring it out because this doesn't have to be global scale stuff. There can be like little bits about how um, how a piece of what an insulation looked like, material science, and you know the actual research behind it can be can be pretty strong. So you don't have to be too outspoken. But I think what was I was seeing, especially like in school, is like as architects, you're kind of like trying to solve problems. You're trying to identify in a brief oh, this is the issue and try and design a solution, like architectural or not. And you can, you're supposed to like bring in all the socioeconomic stuff and, mm -hmm. and engineering. And we're supposed to have like a big uh, God level view, but there's very few like architects who are actual entrepreneurs that you actually come across in all my time. Like all the people in the construction industry that are innovating are always on the engineering side or on the construction side or on the developer side and there's a big hole in the middle where the architects aren't you know creating these companies that can actually fix the built environment mm. and uh, funny the, the lecture that i was doing this week was all on smart city tech so that was that was the first two gbips was all smart city tech i think ours was net zero mm -hmm. and then it was yeah. and uh you'd think all that innovation should come from say the architects who have a kind of a god level view on all the problems and issues but it's it doesn't so i think that that's one of the well it, it goes back to that what i was saying earlier of like the plaster on the wound like yeah. it, you kind of end up with like there's lots of technical solutions mm. but they're not fundamental solutions if that makes sense yeah and and yes that they are all really important they all form part of that um overall solution like for some of the water tech we're doing now the wider solutions wouldn't be possible without these new sort of breakthroughs basically yeah, um, yeah so it does it is all vital but at the same time we know that there's like these bigger sort of yeah fundamental issues that have to sort of be looked at as well yeah. and in some respects some of them are much harder to resolve than as you know as you say just a technology it has to be kind of a culture change and everything but it has to sort of but you can't just have a culture change. You need a business to drive that or a market to drive that change. Yeah, and yeah. that's part of the big challenge, isn't it, of, of getting it forward? Um, it's true. On that, on that point, though, 
um, on the technology side. I just thought it might be worth coming back to the um, 3D printing. Right. Because earlier, and we can't not talk about it, but you talked about the moon base. Yeah. <laughs> so, sure. and, and you mentioned earlier about some bits with Mars as well. So yeah. whilst we're not going to talk a lot about it, yeah. I think the context of why there are technological issues in that context that you explained before the podcast yeah. is actually really quite useful to help people want to understand why 3D printing is perhaps not the best solution. Yeah, it's interesting because it's got its, um, yeah, it's got its uses mm. in, in certain stuff. And I think this is the kind of issue that I was touching on was how 3D printing houses just came out the idea of, oh, we're 3D printing everything else. Why mm. don't we 3D print a house? And it came, yeah. um, like say Icon isn't founded by an architect or, or it's kind of comes from just the concept of, oh, can we 3D print a house? Theoretically, yes. How would you do it? Well, you could 3D print it with concrete. But no one was really asking the people in the industry, like, is this, do we, is this the right yeah. thing to do? You just kind of think, oh, you know, can we do it? And mm. like, yes. And, well, it does have its main uses, and that's on the extraterrestrial architecture. So building on the moon and Mars, where you need, like, full automation and very little, like, uh, actual machinery that you can deal with. And it's got to be remote. And that's where it fundamentally came from. So big, we designed the, well, developed the moon base. So NASA came to us and said, they don't know like how to build it. Like, can we figure it out? And then we went to Icon and said, oh, can you um, help you know, 3D print this thing? Because we thought most likely 3D printing is going to be the best solution. And then NASA gave us like moon dust to look at. And we kind of figured out that you could potentially use that regolith to turn it into like 3D print with. And then Icon, wasn't as massive at the time, um, but they had the Vulcan system where they were printing and they were probably the world leaders. And then we kind of brought them on and helped them kind of get this NASA contract. And now they're like multi-billion dollar, like worth five billion or something. And we were also like designing all the houses in Texas for them. And I think Big is now basically all the houses, like designed all their houses for it. And um, it's really yeah, impressive tech to, to, to actually 3D print it. And there's a lot of huge amounts of R&D and it's amazing and you know if they can actually pull it off and get the moon base built by sending out like one arm that just plugs into the ground and it can churn up the regolith and then it if you see it you can just look up moon base by the Archangels group they, they're all like donut shaped because mm. you put the arm in the middle and it picks up the regolith and then it can churn it out in like a torus uh, but how it's done on earth that's not as useful because you really don't want torus shaped buildings that that was useful because you could um you know you, you had to pile it up to stop it from like meteorite impact and and moon quakes and you know it's very bespoke mm. but in terms of housing it's a bit annoying having like a circular house well, yeah yeah indeed it's also because of things like um you can't get the material there so you're, you're sort of bound by whatever yeah is already there yeah and then i also to your original point just quickly yeah i think one of the reasons because even i was like you know after oh, 3d printing houses logically it makes so much sense you stick a robot there it does everything and bam you've got a house yeah, but yeah. as you pointed out actually logically there's a lot more that goes into a house than just plonking a load of material somewhere yeah that's um because we would we were the, the one also in charge of trying to take their technology of the vulcan mm -hmm. and design the houses for it and we kept coming up against the problem of you can't 3D print flat surfaces. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of flat surfaces in a house because you've got floors mm. and at the moment, and, and a roof. And at the moment, uh, 
their technology, Icon technology, they can only do single story buildings. And there's also an issue of just the labor intensiveness because you can't print the gaps in a, for like a window. Because mm. there's obviously on, you've got, there's nothing on to go against. Yeah. So you always need people there to put the lintels in. And then, so you still need people on site. It's not like completely autonomous. And then uh, you also need to set up the rig, which is annoying because it works like a 3D printer. Yeah. So you have the big posts and it's got to be rigid and they have their own foundations. So it takes a lot of effort to you know, dig out the pads, put extra foundations, then put the rig on just to print one small single story. And you're limited by the size of the rig because of the, it, it can't just be like flopping around. It's got to be super, super rigid. So mm. it uses a lot of material. So you, it, there's limits on the spans that they can do. And then, um, then you take it out and you've got to dig the pads up. And mm. it just all goes into landfill and you're like, oh, you just wasted all this concrete and then you have to move the thing next door. So there's a huge laydown time of, okay, you can 3D print just the walls and you have to take all this machine down, take out the pads, move it to the next site, build another one. So for scale, it's not good. It's not, it's not where well, it's, it's decent, but it's not as efficient as like our, our system. Because if you was going to go from like start to finish, from like having the foundations to finish house, um, you know, it would take, it takes weeks, even with 3D printing, because you then have to bring the roof on top. You have to then put the walls in, mm. you have to add wall, uh, the floors in separately. Um, and we can do all of that in like eight hours, where something that would take them several days, several weeks even to do it. Uh, but that was only from looking at it from a proper point of view, where if, if you actually, if an architect was designing a 3D printing thing, you'd instantly be like, how am I going to 3D print the floors? And how am I going to 3D print the roof? And also, how is this better than just using formwork? Because, you know, when we're doing towers, you use just concrete formwork. Mm -hmm. And you have like a, a prefabricated set of walls and you can do the floor at the same time. And you just bring everything to site, clip them all together, you pour the concrete in, and then you wait, you know, uh, a few days for it to set. And then you can move the thing up and do another one. That's how they do concrete cores and towers. And that's quicker and cheaper and as labor intensive as 3D printing. So you kind of look at it and say, oh, 3D printing is a great idea. And someone said, oh, yeah, let's do it. But no one ever said, is this any better than the concrete formwork that we're doing right now? Yeah. Where you can actually do the roof and the floor at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's their, their biggest competitor is just concrete formwork, mm. and which has been around for decades and is tried and true and everyone does it and it's cheap and easy. Yeah, just general prefab. Yeah. Anything kind of, prefab, I guess. Yeah, or prefabricated. You could just prefabricate the concrete panels. Because if the real problem with the housing crisis or the benefit of 3D printing is you don't need the labor. Yeah. It makes things a little bit cheaper. It means you can theoretically do things a bit quicker. Therefore, it's better for scale. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be better for scale. But it's, it's kind of competitor is formwork where it's already really quick and easy and people can do it at scale. It doesn't use that much labor. And or prefabricated concrete, where you create all the concrete, you know, in a factory, and then you just stick it together on site, and you can do the floor and the walls at the same time. The main use case for three D printing is like one-off bespoke housing, where if you wanted some millionaire wants to create some crazy shaped building that's really funky and curved, and it's you know it's all over the place, and you can create some crazy parametric shapes that are obviously impossible with orthogonal buildings. But if you're just trying to do a orthogonal house to try and solve the housing crisis. Yeah. It, it's, it's it doesn't not, help as it's much. Not, yeah, it's not viable because all the knock-on impacts are so 
great. Yeah. You could all have bespoke furniture and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and then yeah. the other issues is how just to keep it physically rigid, you do have you have two skins that are being printed and they have to connect at some point while it's mm. being printed. And you can have someone going around putting wall ties. But a lot of the time you make the concrete like zigzag inside. And that creates thermal bridging, which means that if it's really cold outside, you bring in the cold, well, letting the heat out. It comes in and you get damp, like cold spots. And that's why a lot of the 3D printing is only currently happening in like Texas, Dubai, you know, Saudi, where it's not, it's not really cold. Mm. If you try and take that to a temperate climate like that now, you try 3D printing with current methods, you just get mold everywhere on the inside yeah. uh, or just lots of condensation. So at the moment, it's not quite there yet. And then the obvious uh, point is that it's concrete. Mm. <laughs> you know, like I just said before, concrete is one of the worst um, emissions of carbon. And there's places like Texas where houses are currently made from timber. Mm. And now they're saying, oh, let's make them from concrete. It's like they were currently relatively low carbon. Yeah. And now they're all out of concrete. And because you can't put that much aggregate into it, because it's got to be very fine uh kind of nose like, yeah. like you can with prefabricated it's all very high in cement the, the carbon emissions are just like off the scale mm. so it's way way worse for the environment than even a traditional brick built house and then obviously way worse than, than a timber house mm. so it's kind of a step in the wrong direction to kind of start printing in that so it's it's quite nice and if they can fix zero carbon cement yeah and they can maybe fix multi-story concrete so that you could do the tall buildings because at the moment we're focusing on timber which by building regulation standards is only limited to six stories but that's like 96 percent of all buildings on earth mm. about six, yeah. less than six stories but yeah. for the really tall ones it it would be good to have a rig that could keep jacking up and you could kind of just keep 3d printing a core with zero carbon there's or you could 3d print foundations and all these sorts of mm. stuff it, for like one-off really bespoke stuff 3d printing is good but if we're trying to solve a housing crisis it's uh, it's not great and that's funny how actually right now I icon has a a um competition to try and fix that for like low like uh low uh low cost housing it's a competition for designers to try and design it's, it's like a hundred thousand pound prize if you can make it work but we were i was joking about it with some friends because we know that it's just it's not going to work and they've conveniently left off how um you don't have to worry about carbon emissions mm. <laughs> because it's the carbon emissions are like pretty through the roof and i think they've figured it out it wants to be a hundred grand home and they're costing it at like two grand a meter squared which means it's like a 50 square meter home which is too small to be built in this country anyway <laughs> so yeah i think there's there's a long way there's, there's technologies coming, but what's, what we tried to do is look at the technologies that exist right now mm. that you can get mortgages for, you can get insurance for, that are tried and true, and the, the, even the, a lot of the mechanization or the robotics fundamentally exists in other industries and how we could bring all that together to solve those issues rather than um, kind of trying to shoehorn something in, kind of go, go for more of a simultaneously top and bottom approach rather than just a top down of oh we've made 3d we can 3d print with concrete now now mm -hmm. go go and do something with it so yeah it's definitely a um 
a challenge. This, but for extraterrestrial construction, it's it's the game changer. <laughs> well, so. the, the other thing you mentioned on the extraterrestrial side, just because I know it's something people are interested in, yeah, was um, was around the thought of thermal bridging side and the fact mm. you didn't need as much insulation in the walls, yeah, which yeah. I found really surprising because you because it's incredibly cold in space. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anyone's seen Star Wars, they know space is cold and horrible. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's so, true. So how does that work? So usually, so the problem, if you, yeah. The problem is that it's cold fundamentally because there's no atmosphere to speak of mm -hmm. as such. And the if you did take off your spacesuit in space, it would be more of the pressure that killed you first mm -hmm. rather than freezing to death. That's why your you know your head explodes or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's like that that's more of an issue than than the being too cold. And then when you look at something like the space station, obviously that's why it's circular. But how um it yeah, you'd imagine that just the house behind there's 200 thick walls of insulation just in case it's zero degrees outside let alone if it's minus 250 so you'd imagine and it's all a linear progression so because you base your u values on the temperature difference inside and out so you'd imagine if it's going to be extra uh, 10 times the difference the insulation is going to have to be like two meters thick or something so you'd imagine that the space station should have walls two meter thick just of insulation uh, or when we was building on the moon it's like how would you get the insulation there how are you going to build two meters thick of insulation it's not going to work but the point is is that because there's no atmosphere on the moon um this is all based on nasa's research they're like oh you don't actually need the insulation because mm. there's the atmosphere is the thing that's wicking away you know it's kind of hitting against the side and drawing the energy from inside mm -hmm. so if there's no air to carry the energy away it just kind of sits there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that was quite an interesting one because we were initially looking at it being like doing the calculations thinking, oh, there's no way you could, you just, the amount of energy you'd expend trying to keep up with the amount that's being lost. You still have to have a bit of aerogel to stop it going through the, the ground into mm -hmm. the core. And there's a bit of like a vacuum separation there. But as long as you've got a vacuum around because space is a vacuum, yeah. then the energy can't be, can't be transferred transmitted back out of it mm -hmm. which is quite nice but then yeah you still had to, it had to be very thick walls of just solid mass just a thermal mass so you'd print the, the structure and then you can pile bits of regolith on top or you just kind of keep printing it quite thick because fundamentally all you need to do is create a, just a container to stop the air fundamentally escaping and you'd probably be all right but if you keep piling more and more regolith on top just what we did then you would uh one stop it from meteorite strikes and then two it means that it helps stops the uv coming out getting in and then also helps stop the the heat getting all the way through from from exposure to the sun mm. but yeah it's it's definitely uh, quite interesting and i think they're sending up the first stages next year so it's project artemis that's mm -hmm. what it's all part of that's what we did and they're sending up with spacex some of the stuff next year so we'll see if it actually works but that's one of the interesting things a lot of our tech like aeroponics comes from nasa and the space station mm -hmm. and nasa's obviously really pushing the limits and they're effectively yeah putting a lot of money into making this vulcan 3d printer kind of work it's just uh it will be amazing for building on mars and building on the moon or wherever we want but actually on earth it's it's still good it's just not the most efficient like it's great for super hostile 
like low gravity environments. But uh, here we've got, you know, something better to, to kind of deal with. Uh, but yeah, we'll kind of see what mm. happens. I think it, yeah, it will be really interesting. But there's loads of different angles. You know, you could prefabricate stages and stick them on the top. Or, um, I was talking earlier, you could dig in underneath. But at the moment, uh, yeah, 3D printing with a regolith was considered the best way to get like a, it was the because all you have to do is just send up the arm, mm. the system. You just send the system, and you can then keep moving it around. And do it. If you if you sent it as a full stage that had to be built like the space station, you have to keep sending more and more stages. Where here you could theoretically just keep building these structures, and um, yeah, and you can kind of bury them under the ground so they're a bit more protected from from sunlight. So we just had to scoot round quickly because we're, we're burning in the sun. But um, <laughs> okay, for anyone watching and wondering why, we, why we've moved. Yeah. Um, so I think we, we've talked a lot about kind of generally what you're up to. And I need to caveat the episode here slightly because we can't see exactly what you're doing or talk about exactly what you're doing because it's still really deep in R&D and there's lots of IP issues and things like that. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about exactly what you're doing. Yeah. But hopefully people have been getting a gist of kind of generally what's what's going on mm. and that is a new way of building stuff yeah basically um, exactly. so do we want to talk a little bit about what we can talk about yeah. in terms of what you're currently doing yes I and i can't say much more yeah. <laughs> so i'll leave it to <laughs> <That's> you because <it. laughs> i tied myself in knots yeah yeah no, no you're, you're right yeah because we're quite um yeah waiting on the pattern we sort of have to yeah keep being stealth mode mm. for a bit but it's yeah talk generally about it. you can kind of get the idea that a lot of the stuff that i was involved in before was quite deep tech mm. high like high tech construction really advanced kind of methods and had a kind of deep dive into lots of different ways of, of building and then try to take that expertise into another way of thinking or looking approaching it from a net zero and a housing crisis kind of point of view and taking in stuff that i learned from being in construction so got kind of good background in construction worked on building sites a lot and we built these houses here and say like the first one that we did learned a lot mm -hmm. and it was after doing that five years ago that I kind of started thinking maybe this could be better and then after working at big realized oh yeah it could be better and we could take in different methods of thinking and you could integrate it and you, you can do something about it so yeah we're kind of a similar value proposition to icon and 3d printing but we have net zero and we you know, can do it cheaper and um, with uh, yeah, yeah, basically less cost and quicker. And another kind of aspect of it is trying to just reduce the amount of labor, the labor intensity of construction. Because ultimately productivity in construction hasn't changed for 100 years. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like farming has improved sort of 16 fold, I think manufacturing is about eight fold in increasing product through mechanization. Mm -hmm. Actually, on, if you're on a building site, sure there's diggers and uh, cranes and stuff like that, but fundamentally a lot of what we do on the site is still very, very labor intensive. And we actually have a two pronged problem where uh, one, the labor is getting super expensive because yeah. generally it, it's getting a more like costly to to find the people to do the job because nobody wants to work very mm -hmm. in construction so 
in, for instance, in the UK, we have a massive labor shortage of like 250,000 people that we need. And after like Brexit, that's even worse because mm -hmm. there's less people coming from the continent. So we're in a bit of an issue where the people that you can get to do the labor are now going massively up in price because you can't physically get them. Um, and so therefore, if we can kind of, if we can bring robotics onto the construction site, um, or just try and automate as much of the supply chain as possible, we can reduce the amount of labor needed, which means that the cost involved goes down. But also, you can't even get the jobs anyway, so it means that we can build more. Because you know, if we've got a 250,000 labor shortage, then uh, if we can meet that need through robotics, then we can build more housing, and building more housing just effectively makes it cheaper in general. So we're theoretically just developing lots of different technologies. And there's mm -hmm. some in the garage behind us, <laughs> and there's some that we're developing in around the world with different people. And they're all doing their own little bit, and it all kind of goes into this supply chain that we've made up. And it's very particularly engineered so that it still works within building control and kind of works with the planners and it works with the banks and it works with the insurers and it's also good for the contractors to use developers like it you know architects like it the consumer likes it you know it's trying to tick all the boxes of mm -hmm. the stakeholders and the engineers and stuff so you have to kind of mediate all these different parties and it's kind of one thing of trying to come up with the idea and then another of putting it into reality of like trying to develop the technology and develop it at scale because it's that's like Elon Musk always says it's like easier to do the kind of prototype but then to, you know putting it to practice is really hard so mm. you got like lucid motors or someone who can say oh we've got a battery that can last a thousand miles but it's like yeah try and mass produce that for mm. uh for for mass production and that's kind of the issue we're up against where we can develop these systems um to kind of build the housing, say like, like 3D printers do, but it's then developing that such a way that you could be building millions of homes a year, which is yeah. the necessary thing. Like we need, I think the World World Bank says that we need to build two billion homes over the next 80 years, which is like two, uh, no, 25 million homes per year that need to be built, which is a lot. And if we're trying to develop a technology to meet that kind of demand, 3D printing, cannot physically go quick enough like you have to build all the rigs individually so we've been developing a system that is scalable as well and uh, has an economy of scale which is the thing that's missing from construction so usually when you build a house it's just as expensive to build the next house you know yeah whereas for us we've developed a method where it's cheaper than more houses that you build mm -hmm. so it's perfect for sites of like thousands of houses and it means that you're in you know, the more houses you build, the, the cheaper they are to build, which is, uh, that's the real kind of game changer, which is kind of what we're doing differently. Mm. But the way that we're doing exactly, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, well, on that note, should we go and see some of the houses that you've been working on so far? Yeah, we can have a look. We can have so a look we'll around. Have a look at the one behind us, if that's yeah. all right. Yeah, we can. And then you can explain a bit about 
you know, what you can say about what you've done, yeah. um, why you've made the decisions you have in the design and why things perhaps are done a certain yeah. way, just so people can understand a bit more about what really makes a home sort of net zero yeah. um, and sort of the energy saving and technologies that you're, you've introduced. It's true, yeah. Because so I'm also a certified passive house designer, which mm -hmm. I did the course and it's like a nightmare to get the certification. And so I've also been applying those kind of principles on top of the net zero principles, on top of zero carbon stuff. And this, the house behind, we tried to load up with a load of technology. It's just been in, uh, well, it's in the Grand Designs magazine. It wasn't on Grand Designs TV show, but it's in the magazine. Home building and renovating magazine. Uh, won an award for the best house in the region. So it's, it's kind of really pushes the, pushing the boundaries at the moment. But it's trying to be a, a real combination of typology and uh, in, in relation to context. So it's not like a super avant-garde design. Yeah. It's supposed to be responsible like uh, respectful to the surroundings right mm -hmm. next to a grade one listed church uh, we're not in a conservation area but it's very there's protected views and there's lots of trees so it wants to be integrated so this is kind of our model home that we could take this typology even for somewhere like lincolnshire it's like a new agricultural new typology for lincolnshire and we can kind of put it everywhere and it's a beautiful thing and it can work well and we can scale it and it fits in a lot of locations and it can still be a really or inspiring place to live mm -hmm. and still be cold in the summer and hot in the winter and barely cost anything to, to run. So it's not like at the point of net zero over a life carbon assessment. At the time, those didn't really exist when we were doing it. But that, there's a lot that we learned from this, pushing the limits on that, that we're now putting into the full net, kind of net zero life carbon assessment method. So yeah, we can have a walk around and I'll point out some of the stuff. Perfect, looking forward to it. Yeah, cheers. Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. From fairly traded stone to low carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities, and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. Okay, so here we are with this fantastic house and a bit more clear view than perhaps we had before. Um, so I don't know, Will, do you want to talk us through a bit of the design and then we can go and have a look inside? Yeah, exactly. So we designed this sort of five years ago and then started construction back then, back in 2019. And it's designed to be all, practically almost net zero, uh, almost zero carbon on site. So it's built using SIPS panels with um, uh, kind of rapeseed inside them. So it's like almost net zero itself using reclaimed bricks that are carbon neutral. And it's a lot of, a lot of timber, all the timber cladding, like kind of natural slates. And then we've got solar panels on the roof, uh, rainwater harvester, a, um, a heat air source heat pump and mechanically ventilated heat recovery system. So there's the vents on the top for the MVHR and it's also kind of uses passive house principles of there's um, not much kind of solar glaze glazing to limit the solar gain, but we, we get quite a lot through the big windows on the east side and kind of uh, on the west side. And then in the, because of the big mature trees around here, usually I kind of see now as the sun comes around, even in the evening in the summer, they help mm -hmm. create shading on mm -hmm. that side. So we, we don't get too much solar gain through this big gable end, but it's kind of designed as a new, 
typology for uh, for Lincolnshire in a way. Mm -hmm. So it's taking reference from sort of a farmhouses in the area. It's a very ag agrarian area, but also we're right next to the Grade One listed church, and uh, this was like a very close to an important open space. And then the house next door, which we initially did and renovated, that was a non-designated heritage asset. So we had to be very sensitive in the design. And what we originally did on the house next door is it's covered in, uh, well, it's all renovated, but there's a big extension on the side that's kind of steel and glass. And the steel is uh, sort of standing seam uh, gray, and it looks very similar to the lead on the church. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much identical. So there's this dialogue between the church mm -hmm. and then church house. So when you when you just kind of stood there, it, it kind of feels very in keeping, even though it's a steel and glass object, it's like mm -hmm. contextual. And we kind of wanted to keep that narrative going, but in a much more kind of low embodied energy response. So we still have that standing seam feel of like the ridges, which is mm -hmm. similar to the lead on the roof. And because it's large cladding, it kind of gets bleached with the sun, so it goes gray. Yeah. And it's still in kind of, there's like this triple now, tri trialogue between the three buildings of uh, the, you know, the 1100, well, thousand year old church basically, and then church house, and then, uh, and then now orchard house. And that kind of timber, I wanted to kind of tie it in more with the, with the reclaimed brick instead of it being too dissimilar. So the board and batten texture mm -hmm. kind of flows down the front side. So it kind of helps to, to tie together all of the reclaimed bricks because they're all quite different, the reclaimed bricks. Some of them have got yeah. paint on them, some of them are different colors. But then this helps, means we could have just got any brick and it would yeah. kind of make it look good. Yeah, that's it. No, I think that works really well. I, I really like the way they blend together. Yeah. And I really like the, the range of bricks as well. I think it just gives it a much more, well, of course, it's a much more mottled look by the nature of things, but mm. um, it makes it feel like it's been there a lot longer because of that. Yeah. It yeah. looks like it's had something sort of done to it to make it bed into the place. So it's true. I think it's really nice. That's what's really cool about Reclaimed, because when you get really mm. close to it, it still holds up that you can see like the handprints and you know, like the, yeah. the, the old pieces of grass, which they use to kind of mold it, mold it all. So it, it's still, and you're reclaiming them, so you're reusing them to zero carbon, mm. and you can actually, it feels like it instantly settles the building in Absolutely, the context yeah. rather than looking a bit too a bit too fake and stark. And, mm -hmm. and then as well, the larch used to be a lot deeper color that you can kind of see under the, the windows where they're a bit mm -hmm. more protected by the sun. But as it kind of settles in, the idea was because we're surrounded by the trees, that striping kind of works like a zebra stripes and it helps break up the form a lot more. Mm -hmm especially when it's seen through these trees. Like you can mm -hmm. see to the right, there's all these vertical verticality of the trees. And when you see it from that view, it actually kind of blends in a bit. You can't mm -hmm. really see the exact extent of the building, so it doesn't feel imposing. Because uh, there's the main road beside us, and it, they wanted to keep the character of the village right. So it's, it sort of blends into these surroundings, and it also creates kind of like a nice private glade here. So yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, one point on that as well, where you've talked about these large sort of boundary trees mm. um, that are sort of behind the camera usefully, but yeah. um, they're, they're, they play a really important role in looking at the sustainability of buildings because mm. obviously in the UK, we talk more about sort of keeping heat in and reducing energy use in terms of keeping the houses warm. But as the climate gets warmer, obviously houses are gonna be subject to a lot more heat and longer yeah. periods of hot weather. So making sure that the trees are there to help shade it yeah. in the summer as well is just as important. Yeah, as considering some of those other factors. And, you know, if we can do that effectively, it reduces either the need for 
um, air conditioning, which is one of the biggest energy users in the world. Yeah. Um, so you might be able to emit that completely through good design, yeah. or you have to use it a lot less. So there's a lot less energy use in, in its application anyway. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's kind of the theory, which you always think about when you do a section and you draw yeah. the diagrams and it kind of does pretty much work out that it's only really in the worst heat where it's super high stress, like where it's 40 degrees or something that you have to rely on uh, cross ventilation mm -hmm. for it. But usually if the building has you know, got the windows closed and it's not letting that hot air in, it actually generally keeps pretty cool on its own. Mm -hmm. And then as long as in the, because most risk of overheating in, in the evening when the sun can go straight in and it's hotter, uh, because yeah, the trees are here, helps protect it and mm -hmm. yeah, this is called orchard house so it was the orchard for church house and that's why we've got you know, pear tree and apple trees all around and then we tried to keep as many trees as we could mm -hmm. so we it's the shape it is so that it can you know fit around those uh, trees so i tried to create quite a, like a succinct kind of rationale to it so the way the building works it's got one central gabled section in the middle it's just like a long barn shape mm -hmm. and there's these two uh, orthogonal to sort of structures that sort of emerge from that piece. So you have, and they're all lined up perfectly with the top of the, the cladding. So mm -hmm. it feels like you've just got this sort of oblong shape that's, that's protruding from the section, but it's actually kind of also working around the trees and they're exactly opposite. And it's all kind of perfectly formed. So this gable end is a, a perfect square mm -hmm. and it's also the same depth going back. So it's like a, there's a perfect cube sat right here mm -hmm. and on the other side it's like a perfect half cube it cut up and then the, the forms inside are then another two cubes and then another half cube so it's all like on exact module and that's all kind of based off the size of a brick so these are actually slightly weird shaped bricks because they're reclaimed so they're slightly wider um, but that then was able to determine basically the grid of the uh, the cladding so you can actually see that the cladding and the battens line up exactly with the mortar joints, mm -hmm. like everywhere. It's all perfectly aligned and they align perfectly with all the windows and you know, it's, it's all super neat. And then that's all you know, determines mm -hmm. the, the whole grid and module of the thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it seems quite kind of simple, but there's lots of little details that, that yeah. really bring it. Like the, the cladding, it's hell has invisible fixings which we kind of developed ourselves and because mm -hmm. we built this ourselves and we built the cladding ourselves we made all the panels we made them in the bedroom and then <laughs> we'll bring them out and then stick them on and they all have like an invisible fixing so you can't oh, wow. see any there's no screws there's no nails mm. so it's super clean and there's actually somebody a neighbor who tried to copy it because they loved it so much but they didn't know how to do it so they just drilled it and the problem is that after time it rusts yeah and you get these streaks down it where now this has been in you know four years it still looks you know, super clean. It's like mm -hmm. super fresh. So it was a lot of effort figuring it all out and getting it done, but you end up with a really kind of high-end sort of finish, mm -hmm. which is really cool. So no, it looks fantastic. And then the only other thing to mention, oh, yeah. I think, was about the solar panels. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing. We weren't allowed to put solar on the gables. It just couldn't be visible because it's in a protected area. It can mm -hmm. be near the church, but they're currently hidden on the parapet. So that flat building isn't just because it's protruding out of the internal mass. It's got a, a small parapet that kind of has the solar on it. So you, you won't actually be able to see the solar around. And there's one on the other side as well. Mm -hmm. So that enables us to you know, still get a lot of harness the solar gain uh, without kind of compromising the aesthetic or, or planning. Mm -hmm. So 
it was quite a neat solution instead of either just not having it or uh, putting another gable end here, which we couldn't have done. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of, I like to do two things at once. Yeah. You know, that, that's the benefit of it. It's like, we, it kind of looks really cool and it's a perfect cube and you get a flat roof, but then it also enabled us to put the solar in without hiding. So nice. it was, I yeah. Now it looks really good. Yeah, it's kind of, now that it's getting kind of settled in and it took a long time, it was a long time fighting the planners to get yeah. it. And yeah, initially they, they were pretty heavily against it, but we kind of proved that it will kind of really assimilate into the environment. Yeah, because they're it's a very verdant area, and mm -hmm. they don't want because the main view as you come in over a bridge and you look straight at this site. But now they're kind of like, oh yeah, you're right, because you can barely see it, and the bits that you can see, it's just kind of broken up by the trees, and it's it's kind of really well assimilated and it's sustainable, and it didn't cost that much more because we did it. So you know, a normal house in the area of this size could cost like six or seven hundred grand or something but it cost like 200 250 300 grand to build so you know you could have bought a pretty bog standard house next yeah. door which is just like any other like built traditional and mm -hmm. with none of the sustainability credentials or you could we could have just built it ourselves and uh you'd get a much better finish mm -hmm. to it so yeah it's definitely worth doing it and then yeah, my parents were the client. <laughs> we were super happy as well. Perfect. Because they didn't, initially, it was good that they waited because I'd done a few houses before this mm -hmm. for other clients. And then I learned a lot from them. And then I could like put in, kind of, you know where to push the boundaries. Once yeah. you can kind of walk before you can run. I knew, okay, this is, we could do a cladding system like this. And we have this kind of shadow gap uh, gutter detail, mm -hmm. which I designed on some other houses. And I know how that could work. Yeah, and how we could get the people to kind of fit that in. You can actually see it more on the other side. Um, and then how we could do it with the SIPs panels. And then it was really from this that I then learned even more and from being on site and seeing the construction that then gave me the ideas to push the boundaries of the construction processes mm -hmm. rather than just dealing with what we've already got. Um, the good to kind of like how we could you don't have to be right. It's like with the cladding system. We didn't have to rely on what was in the market. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, you could develop something yourself, especially because we were doing it ourselves. So uh, that enabled us to be really innovative. And then it's the next one. We've then gone even more further. And then we're hoping on the one after that, we could keep on adding more and more innovations into bits. And yeah, that's a good idea. Pretty cool. So we'll, we'll just around a bit. wander around to the front. Yeah. And have a look from that. Unless there's any details we want to point this, out as we go around. Yeah, it's just that we, we kind of continue these kind of slit windows, kind of like arrow holes, because on the church, they have these really kind of verticality, all these kind of gothic windows with the kind mm -hmm. of murder hole kind of arrow slits on them all the way up the, the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, actually on the church house side, they have windows like this facing out into the church. And then we want to kind of continue that in, but it also means that you don't get too much solar gain on this south side, but mm -hmm. it kind of helps that verticality and then on on this side going up. And then I just wanted, it's difficult to see, but yeah, there's like a shadow gap roof detail on that eaves that's really difficult to do. It kind of, it's, there's loads of little bits where it's like, if you're an architect and you look at that, you're like, oh, that's really kind of tricky to get all those bits to line up. That's mm -hmm. quite fancy. And then making sure that, you know, we had this continuous um, sort of a bead that goes across the top of the bricks. 
mm -hmm. so that can the anthracite, and then that kind of comes all the way around to you know across the face of the building to kind of look, to kind of then line up with the the soffit underneath because where it kind of steps under. So you have like this continuous bead. It looks like it's just a you know the the top of the brickwork. Then it goes around so that it's one continuous piece. So there's not like a, a, a stepping. It's like quite a neat little detail because uh, then that creates this recess which is the entrance so that when you arrive and you're trying to take the keys out and you're not getting kind of covered mm -hmm. in um, not getting rained on and you can see this is the other little step out and the, the drive and where we there's kind of like a more protected space in here mm -hmm. and the big tall windows like a scaled up version of those arrow slits and that's yeah. where the, the staircase goes up so as you walk up the staircase, you get to, you initially can't see over the garage, but then as you get to the top, you can kind of see out into the rest of the garden, like over the way. Oh, okay. So it's, yeah, it seems, it's like a lot of clean, kind of very neat, like tectonic details. We're trying to just do everything right. We're line everything up and, mm -hmm. you know, use the authenticity of the materials because those planks of wood are just like raw pieces of larch. We never cut them to the size. And yeah. we're trying to make everything work exactly with, the supply chain rather than saying oh, I'd rather it was this size and you have to cut everything to fit yeah it's like we made everything so it was as efficient as kind of possible mm -hmm. no it looks really good I really like yeah. it yeah like it. it's it's um yeah it's turned out it's turned out all right I, I can't really think of too many things that I would have done differently no I, yeah. I said when I first arrived to you that this is how I want my house to look yeah so, <laughs> yeah it's, so. it's it's something which is a bit unassuming where you think you know, it's not too showy to be like, oh, it's this crazy postmodern thing. But, you know, it's really neat details that work on making kind of sustainable stuff look good and mm. still be cost effective and be easier to build. And, you know, this was in Architects Journal and like I said, and, you know, Grand Designs magazine and it's won a load of awards and it's, you know, it's kind of can be worked as a new typology, you know, we always say that saving the earth doesn't have to cost the planet. No, yeah. saving the planet doesn't have to cost the earth. That's mm. So it's like you don't have to make it more expensive for, to get that kind of net zero type building. And mm. that's what we're proving here. And we could do it for one building. And then the next one is to prove that we could do it at scale mm -hmm. using our method. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it was fun. It was good. And you know, I've worked a lot on site doing it and learned a lot. So that was why I have kind of a unique expertise where I go from working in a architect practice at like the biggest possible scale and the biggest possible challenges um, to then just the small details of making sure you have a level threshold detail mm -hmm. and how, how that actually works into the rest of the landscaping. Yeah. Or, or how you make this little soffit kind of line up or how could you build this sort of thing you know, at scale so more people could mm -hmm. also enjoy it. So yeah, it's... Um, it's useful to be able to bring that, the big scale into the small scale. It, like I said, it creates a fully holistic design. It's like when I'm designing, I always imagine it like a Rubik's cube. Mm -hmm. You know, every every single side you look at it has to be has to be right. You can't have like six sides or four of the sides all good and then two of them aren't right or something. It's got to make sure that everything kind of stacks up in, in all different mm -hmm. directions. So, yeah, take absolutely. Time. Look inside. Yeah, definitely want to look inside. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, this is a big vaulted space 
Mm. Yeah, so it's this beautiful, is very airy. Yeah, exactly. nice and cool as well on a hot day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we've got sort of lots of light coming in from that right-hand side. And then it's nice that when you sat here at the desk, and this is where we kind of usually have all the plans out for uh, you know for the next house. We can kind of sit here, but there's all that light coming in. And then you can also kind of in an evening retire more in this area where there's a, a log burner uh, where we you know, have biomass and you can kind of look outside and that's nice for the evening because mm -hmm. it's on the west side uh, but then you can also come through here and into the kitchen which kind of wraps around and that's facing more out into the, the east side so when the sun's rising you have more of like a breakfast area out here where you can hang out and chill more in the in the morning and then having a coffee and stuff it's, it's more mm -hmm. on that side and well, but with the garden beyond as well it was just just beautiful yeah it's really yeah it's really something and the, the trees still kind of help to block the worst of the, the morning heat a bit but mm. it's still good when it gets a bit higher it's yeah. it's really nice to be sat out here and it's quite secluded and you can yeah just look down to the garden all you can see is is trees until mm. we're going to build our other house <laughs> but at the moment that's it feels really neat and then there's all the utility with just uh, with the bathroom on the side here but it kind of works as like a, a zigzag so that yeah. even when you're sat, you could be sat here, um, you know, watching TV and somebody else could be sat there in the same room watching another TV and it's not affected because mm -hmm. like the acoustics are in different directions and you can sit here hanging out and someone else can be sat there. And even though it's the same room, you never really disturb each other. You could be here because there's the big void in the middle that takes a lot of the sound out. But well, that, so that's something I noticed because I have a bit of a booming voice. Right. And I was, thinking, I was thinking, oh gosh, it's going to be very, you know, echoey yeah, for us yeah. to record in here. Maybe the viewers think differently. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but being in <laughs> here, you really don't, yeah. you hear a little bit of an echo, but really not very much. And I was quite surprised as to how you'd sort of tackled that really. Because, yeah. you know, I don't get involved in building design really. Yeah, but yeah. it is surprising. It's true with the, we've got, because we've got these engineered floors with um, engineered timber floors with uh, underfloor heating. So there's that, that makes it a little bit worse but it's just the soft furnishings got mm. carpet on the top these kind of the bring that verticality back in with the staircase i've got these little, uh, the handrail is made of these vertical battens that go up, all the way up and then round and that actually helps baffle the acoustics quite a bit because mm -hmm. you've got all these different sides where you're talking over there it's actually being kind of passed around quite a lot if it was just plate glass mm -hmm. you would get a decent echo they kind of work as a bit of um, kind of a, a baffler, and and yeah, and then in here it is quite like loud. It's quite a big space, but that's why you, you get kind of you, you come into this initial compression, and then you get this kind of release, and it's like a big thing, big airy space, and then mm -hmm. you go back into the compression, and you, you're in a more kind of snug area mm -hmm. where um, you know, yeah, you wouldn't you don't notice if there is any kind of echo too much. No. So, but I also like how there's you know, you've got the view out through that way and then you can still look out into the, this uh, side of the garden with, uh, with the sink. Because this one was kind of the old glade with the old orchard and everything mm. going on it. So there's really nice mature trees and there's all the squirrels running around it. And stuff. Yeah. And then it's, it's simultaneously you can look out into this garden <laughs> on the other side. We've got, it's much more new and kind of planted up with um, much more kind of, of a formal garden in comparison. So... It's actually cool to kind of keep telling those differences and then you can use it throughout the day. And this is only just usually for my mum and dad, so they can kind of 
spread out quite easily. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of accommodates them quite well. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's surprisingly light in here as well. I mean, from the outside, mm. obviously, you've got these giant windows. Yeah. But they're a lot more noticeable from the inside than when you're outside. They don't actually stand out that much. It's quite interesting how, even True. in such a big glazed area, it kind of blends in. Yeah, yeah. It's really nicely done. This is it. I like this kind of cave aesthetic <laughs> where you just kind of sat there and it's like solid walls mm-hmm. and then you're just kind of looking straight out to one end and it's always about bringing the outside in and kind of creating that quite liminal space because yeah it's one big sliding door on mm-hmm. that side and it's sliding because they're all lining up with the uh, the windows above and it lines up with you know, the actual brick dims and stuff mm-hmm. but it means that you can you know, just kind of just your eyes can really kind of it frames that view quite well yeah so it's pretty absolutely good. absolutely yeah so it's actually not too bad yeah so you kind of get this feeling that's mm. a bit of a TARDIS in a way. Like you might look on the outside and you might expect a completely different space internally, especially with something like the vaulted ceilings or how this is all one big space. Mm. You'd kind of see it from the outside and not realize that it's just going to be this so open and kind of airy. Yeah, indeed. I think, nice. I think the gable ends play quite a big role in that because from the outside, you obviously, whilst the house doesn't extend much further beyond mm. this one yeah. or this one, they kind of like just break up that view, don't they? So yeah, yeah, it helps yeah. bed the house in a bit more. And because you've got the greenery and everything as well in those gaps, mm. again, it just softens the whole aesthetic and really beds it, beds it in. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't feel as big as perhaps, because it's a big house. It doesn't, yeah. it really doesn't feel that yeah, imposing as big as perhaps it is. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel imposing. It's yeah. true. Like if we, if we'd filled in the void, you could have got another bedroom in here or two or something, you mm. know, it could have been six bed house, but, but it's actually nicer without it that you get this really amazing kind of yes. space when you come in and then it's great when you have dinners and uh, if it's like Christmas and you can mm. all sit around a table. And the main ethos was as well that when people move a bit away from norm, like TVs, this is actually like quite kind of old school in a way that most people consume content on their phones or- I don't have a TV. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. On, on iPads and stuff, you're not actually gonna design it around on TV or people would be more siloed in their rooms, you know, like all the, all the bedrooms. So it's quite nice that if people are in their bedrooms or like when we're there or when there's like the whole family here, you're still kind of connected. Like mm. you could still be down here and people can be up there and you, you still can talk to each other and you're still not completely separated. I think there's more people decentralized kind of from, well not decent, yeah, yeah decentralized from the living room. Mm. You're actually still trying to create a, a nice kind of communal atmosphere yeah that's it well, i think it's yeah it's nice because everyone has to pass through it so it automatically kind of has that like meeting place yeah vibe doesn't it exactly and yeah. when you have this because there's a uh the kind of walkway that goes all the way around mm-hmm. means that yeah it's it's pretty cool kind of sat up there and it's always nice sort of work working down here it's got good lighting or working kind of at, at the table there and yeah there's lots of kind of quite neat spaces which you can Kind of travel around and I don't it wasn't designed to be like too like uh, prag- like a prosaic where you kind of if this is what you do in this location this is what you do mm-hmm. in that location so I think like, this is how I'd laid out things in plan but maybe the next owner they could maybe put the dining room over there and you could have like a more of a living area in this center when you don't need a tv there you can yeah. have it like in the center and everyone's just kind of lounging here so I think it's really flexible. Or you flexible. can see someone put a big grand piano here or something. Kind yeah, of. yeah, exactly. You could do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. This could be, 
this is because this is that the empty room there, but it, it could also be part of the the you know, the entrance sequence as well. Mm -hmm. So you could have something like grand piano or or like a, yeah more of a living room, and then that's mm -hmm. the dining room. And then it's also was a bit of a concept that we we was going to put um, curtains in if necessary because mm -hmm. there was a one thing was either well acoustics or two like oh if we wanted to divide that section off for whatever reason that you could theoretically have a big sliding yeah. door because there used to be a window there was going to be a window plan there but we took it off thinking oh we might put a big sliding wall there mm -hmm. that you could bring all the way across so that was planned but realised you didn't really need it yeah. it's actually it's always been fine to have one big kind of central space that has lots of different options that can be kind of siloed off mm -hmm. by by the ceiling height which is quite quite interesting yeah so yeah i don't know um if you want to see anything else yeah i mean anything think. you're happy to show us i think it'd be interesting just to see because it's a beautiful yeah. space we can go a bit upstairs kind of yeah we're gonna stop, stop can, along but just have a quick yeah you can kind of quick look, nose if that's yeah right. you can have a walk up here yeah and we designed I designed the staircase. I think in the next one, we're going to design and build it all ourselves. But it's nice that there's kind of... So you like brought in this masters. in yourself. This was like purchased, was it, opposed to designed by you guys then? No, we designed it. Oh, you did design it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I designed that and the staircase. And it was all timber. And they wanted to put steel in it. But we put the two big glue lambs on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Because uh, that, that should be enough to do it. But it was always designed that you'd have that one step at the bottom so you can get onto it so it's all kind of perfectly lined up that the void is just big enough to kind of accommodate that one step at the base rather mm -hmm. than being like two steps or something and then we've obviously got like the big glue lamb beam at the top that's kind of holding up all the slates and then this the kind of pendant light and then yeah you can kind of start to you know, get a bit of a different view out the windows those big tall windows you can it's one thing downstairs, but then upstairs you can get a lot more light in. So mm -hmm. it's quite nice when you're walking up in front of it. Yeah, you get different absolutely. aspect out. And kind of quickly going here, I think it's super. There's a bathroom, and then this. I just have to wait for Rob to catch up. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Sorry, Rob. No, this is then. This is, this was the bedroom for me that I designed. <laughs> oh, nice. So mine has like the vaulted ceiling as well. Mm -hmm. so it's like a really kind of tall space and it's on the north side so it actually keeps pretty cool oh, you can good. feel in here it's yeah. actually a little bit cooler than outside because mm -hmm. we, we only have these windows on each side so i wanted it so that we could have a nice view out that way to the east but also to the west so that you can, mm -hmm. you can you know you've always got like sun a lot of the time and you know the the bits that kind of stick out here are all for the bathrooms so the, on top of the little living room before there's two like little bathrooms that stick out. So that downstairs, it only sticks out two and a half meters, which is probably a bit too small for something like the living room. But because it's all open space, you don't notice. Mm -hmm. And then upstairs, that's accommodated for the for the bathroom. So it's all kind of like a neat arrangement. And then the ceiling heights are always changing in here because we have there are big spaces in in the bedrooms. They're usually mm -hmm. higher, and then in the bathrooms, they're always a bit lower. So. You, it means that you get this more kind of compression and release and this is all a little bit higher in this little walkway and then you enter the much bigger section there so it's mm -hmm. it's always kind of you know, playing with the different feelings kind of subconsciously yeah and this bedroom's a little bit taller mm -hmm. 
because this one has the, the loft in it. That's where that's underneath. Ah, so that's, that's where the MVHR is. So that's all running up there. MVHR? It's the mechanically ventilated heat recovery system. Yeah, so that's what the vents. Yeah, that's yeah. what the vents are for, both kicking out air. And it draws in the air from the bathrooms. So it, okay. so it draws in the, the kind of dirty, as in like the humid, um, kind of hot air out of here. And then the heat recovery system warms the incoming clean air with the hot, dirty air going out. So you get to recover a lot of that heat rather than, you know, in a bathroom, if it's really hot and steamy, you'd probably just open the window and you just let out all that heat. But the heat recovery means that you can just keep the window closed and it's constantly allowing clean air into there mm -hmm. without you losing any heat and you can recover it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty neat. We've always put them in every house I've ever designed. <laughs> We've always, always put it in. It's definitely super useful and it's, it's getting more efficient all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, you can also couple that with the heat pump. So we have a heat pump, air source heat pump, which is then powering stuff like the, the water cylinder and the, and the central heating. And then that's kind of powered along with the heat recovery by the, by the solar. And so a lot of the uh, regulated energy, which is the stuff just to keep the building functioning is all covered by solar. It's then like unregulated, which isn't, which is fluctuates because mm -hmm. there can be times where you know, you happen to you know, charge an electric car or something. Yeah. Like, it could be variable or there might be more people in the house or less people in the house or you're going away on holiday. So the unregulated changes, so it's not covering all the unregulated all the time. Mm -hmm. But if it was to, you could leave the house running for kind of forever. Mm -hmm. you know, the solar is then keeping it kind of warm and, and fresh air in here all the time. So you could theoretically leave the house for you know go on holiday and, and come back and it wouldn't have actually cost you anything but you'd come back and it's still warm and it's still mm. fresh and you don't got mold growing everywhere or something yeah you know? so that's um yeah that's that's quite neat so we, i definitely learned a lot because we tried to do a lot of it like as much as we could ourselves we didn't have like, off-grid works set up at the time mm -hmm. but we learned a lot and outsourced like the sips panels and obviously the windows and stuff but we put in um, you know, did a, a lot of the painting and did, like, did the doors and did all, a lot of the floors and you know, tried to do as much work as we could. So learned a lot. Yeah, so that's yeah. it's paid off, I think. It looks, well, it looks fantastic. Yeah. And now you've got the next, next one started. One. Yeah, exactly. It's a high bar yeah. because <laughs> cause I, uh, Church House won the award for best house in the region um, and then our uh, best extension in the region, technically. And then this one, best house in the region. And then the next one, uh, building control, I, I better get a national award now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll try. It could do it, I think, if we could, um, yeah, if it's really, really cool. Because mm. that one is, was really, really difficult to get planning because it was like the unholy trinity of, they thought there was a viewing of a great crested newt on the site mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So they said there was no way you could build there because it's you know endangered species. There's also an important open space, so it means it's protected worse than a green belt, which means yeah. that you, it's illegal to build anything on it. And also, you, it was next to a grade one listed asset, which had protected views. So it was like everything you could possibly imagine was a nightmare. So as a planning consultant, people were like, ah, oh, just don't go near it with a barge pole, like, there's mm. no point. So, um, but I was like, I'm gonna have a go. 
And then we just kind of, I just went through it all meticulously one by one and was kind of on paragraph 80 proving this is going to be like a world leading design. Mm. This is like no one's ever done anything like this ever. This mm. is completely earth shattering, which they kind of really got on board with and mm. wanted to do something different. And also we went through it proving with DNA tests that there's no newts, great crested newts within like a 10 mile radius or something. And also English heritage came back saying there was no effect on the church. Hmm. And then we also proved that it's called Hidden House. So there's a huge hedge on the site, which you might go look at. And uh, that actually blinds most of the site. So you, it's very difficult to see in from, mm -hmm. from any angle. So uh, the whole house is kind of stepped, which means that you can't see it. It's kind of stepping away from the hedge, which means whenever you're stood on public land, it's kind of hidden, blinded by this big hedge, which is already already there. So, um, and they were like, yeah, that's kind of fine. If nobody in the public domain could physically see it, then what can they complain about? Like, yeah, who are they protecting? Because mm -hmm. you have no right to a view from your house. Mm -hmm. It's like, if someone was to build right there, you can't complain because it's private. In terms of public amenity, they had a, obviously had a right, but we proved that it couldn't be seen. So that remains to be proven, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did all the calculations. So it's basically like two gables, one smaller than the other, stepping away from the road. And there's like a big, where they meet, there's like a big central atrium. Mm -hmm. That's like got a glazing all the way across the top. So it's like this huge light well in the center that goes all the way through the house. So you can walk on reinforced glass that's opaque, uh, translucent. And it's like laying this light all the way through the center. So hmm. it should be pretty, pretty cool in the end. And then it helps create stack ventilation to, to kind of purge if needed, if it gets too hot. But yeah, all the plans are down there and we're, we're just- We can't see them. Because no. it's top secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to wait to see it in real life. That's it. Once it's built, we'll be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It won't be hidden anymore. But yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. It's, mm. it's definitely learned a lot from the practicality of like, when you're on site and physically been building it and then realizing how you could push things to be even better. That, mm. That's a big difference because a lot of architects never get to go on site, let alone yeah. physically build stuff with their own hands. Mm. And especially like my colleagues at, the Ark Ingalls group, where everybody I know who are at like the elite, elite end of architecture don't go on site or don't physically build stuff with their hands, especially not to this extent where you're like physically building a hand, house and laying the bricks and figuring everything out. And that enabled me to then innovate in areas where I could see you know, the boundaries could be pushed a bit more. And especially in the context of like sustainability and, mm -hmm. and cost efficiency. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely been a really good experience but it's been like a you know, decade in the works really mm. this this whole master plan and you know getting it all figured out so it's it takes takes time that's the problem other problem with construction it just takes so long yeah like the iteration process is like years and years so you do one house and you're like oh, i should have done that better mm. it's not like an app where you're like oh i'll just update the app you're like oh i've got to knock the whole thing down or I've got to build a new one. So I've got to go get some land, get planning permission, get building control, find hundreds of thousands of pounds to build it. So it's, that's why innovation in, in terms of architecture and design takes so long. But, so it's taken 10 years to kind of get to this stage. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it will be, um, be worth it. Yeah, <laughs> I think absolutely. No, it's a worthwhile venture, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, and you're young too, so you've got loads of time. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the benefit. <laughs> Still, yeah, 29. 
so still got, Good age. got yeah. time to go. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, yeah, that's the other problem with the industry. Like usually you don't get to a point of like running jobs or building like houses yeah. until a lot later, especially not these awards. Like when I used to work at practice not that far away down the road, it, it was like, would have been a dream come true to win these sort of awards or be in Grand Designs magazine. Mm. So, and those guys, you know, you're more likely going to be in your 40s or 50s before you start doing that. So, and at that point, you know, you've got, uh, it's hard to take risks, I'd say. Yeah, you know? indeed. Yeah, because you have families or whatever. Family else and be, mortgage yeah. and you've got, um, yeah, opportunity cost and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe the construction tech side, you know, it's good taking risks now because if it doesn't work out, I've still got the rest of my life to go. Yeah, that's it. And, and then also it's like, it's more personal because in 2050, you know, we're still gonna have quite a long time. Like we'll still be knocking around by 2100. So we've got to mm. make sure the Fingers planet's crossed. still there. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, this is, this is what people don't realize, isn't it? It's, yeah. We're gonna see it in our lifetimes, so that's the scary thing. Yeah. Well, one of the scary things. <laughs> exactly, so for a lot of the guys, a lot of the partners, I like, if, well, not big, but other companies I worked at. Yeah, if you're in your 50s or 60s, or look at like Foster or, Nor or Rogers, or um, I don't know, Chipperfield and all these, the old guard who are like the really big guys. You know? They're all in their 80s and they're not gonna be around for much longer. Like, well, Rogers, he's already passed away. So uh, those are the real super influential architects and they're not gonna be here when climate change really kind of kicks in. Mm. So it's really down to all of the young blood to kind of really figure out what we're gonna be doing. Yeah, so I think that's the other thing that surprises me. I think a lot of the people coming forward with a lot of the really innovative ideas are around our age, yeah, which yeah. is like quite surprising. Yeah, so yeah. I haven't aged as well as you. I'm only, <laughs> I'm only one year older. So, um, you know, True. it's um, but it's interesting when you go around and meet a lot of these quite innovative or alternative approaches. Like yeah. a lot of people do tend to be our sort of age. So you can kind of yeah. see like the next generation kind of coming through and having their impact now and yeah, going yeah. forward with these ideas, which is also really exciting. It's true. And I think that's, that's necessary. It's just that in something like, because um, you see it obviously in tech, you know, mm. quite, and in in like shallow tech stuff, as in like apps and all that things. But yeah. like in deep tech, it's it's tough because mm. you know, it's like to get because just to get the expertise, or even in something like construction, even to become an architect, like fully qualified, took a long seven time. years at least. Mm -hmm. it took me eight, and you, even then you're like told, oh, you're an architect now, but technically you've only had maybe two years of experience and. And that time you've probably never even seen a building getting built, yeah. you know, let alone designed it from start to finish. So I was quite fortunate that I had designed and built buildings mm -hmm. in that time, but that's extraordinarily rare to see a building from start to finish that you've designed yourself. Because I designed this before I was fully qualified and I couldn't use it for my part three because you had to be supervised by an architect. But <laughs> I just did it on my own with no supervision. So I couldn't use this in my actual professional qualification, even though I was like, I designed this from scratch all the way through and built it and it's winning awards. And even it was in the architect's journal and they're like, oh, but it doesn't count towards you know, your actual professional learning. Uh, it basically means that it takes a you know, long time to learn. And then you know, you've got to be at least in your thirties before you start to really understand how you can innovate within the industry. Yeah, something like that. that's it. Well, I, I had a very similar thing, you know, I was, um, representing the UK on the World and European Council for Landscape Architecture yeah. when I was at uni. Yeah. Um, and I was going, coming back from uni having been to, to a World Council meeting yeah. um, where I was one of the 
delegates, you know, yeah. and I'll come back and say, well, actually, this is kind of what everyone's talking about and what they're doing. And the university would be like, no, 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 you don't, you don't know. know what you're talking about. And I was like, well, actually, the university is like quite a way behind now in terms of what we're actually doing. Yeah, but yeah, they're not true. almost not interested because they're like, no, no, that's not the way we're doing things. We're looking at it this way. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I can see the way you're looking at it. But I can see this is perhaps a better way to look at it or a new way to look at it. Maybe we yeah. should look at you know, that option, perhaps. It's true. And it's, yeah. a very, it's a very funny kind of dynamic yeah, that's when the you, problem with kind of the education authority. System. Yeah. When like, oh, you're not old enough to understand. Yeah, indeed. Even if it's now they've been proved wrong, uh, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, well, they're probably all left and it's not their problem anymore. So. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but hopefully there will be more people like me. That's why I'm doing my course and teaching people and stuff to, to kind of get them to do it. Because mm -hmm. definitely by, you do get burnt out pretty quick. Yeah, when, that's the trouble, yeah. When yeah. you're like... Uh, Especially in architecture, after like eight years and then slogging and the long hours and the, you're just like, oh, I'd rather just, once you're fully qualified, just do my time and just kind of try and learn about the industry. And then it's probably not until you're like in your 40s or something, they start thinking, okay, I kind of get a hold of this now. I, mm -hmm. I can go on my own. I'm going to, you have to, and also getting jobs as an architect is really tough because you don't, no one trusts you to build anything until you built something. Yeah. So you have to get a bit of a brand and a, following on Instagram or something. No, that's it, yeah. It's, yeah, you indeed. It. It's kind of like we have the same problem where you either have to submit a great big portfolio, which is really mm. difficult if you've left a company and started a new company because some companies don't want you to show the works you've done or, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Or um, as you say, if you don't have a big Instagram following, especially when you're doing something kind of creative and design-led, yeah. they don't feel confident in the design. Because also for planning, a lot of the stuff can look very mm. boring, whereas mm. you've got someone else that does stuff by, you know, more on the ground, so to speak. Yeah. Um, they've got all those projects with, you know, real photos and stuff to show and it's, it can be very difficult to kind of compare to that. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a big challenge. Because, yeah, even, yeah, even for me, yeah, now, it's just, obviously we'll be out-competed by people who have done, you know, who are in their 50s or 60s or something, who've done loads of homes and it's pretty standard. You're like, oh, here's all the homes. Well, it's the safe bet, get. isn't it? That's yeah. That's the trouble as well. Mm. So you can get, and get people who are like really looking for something really different and really kind of special. Uh, but yeah, definitely because of built stuff and it's been awarded, but to get things going when you're like, like in your 30s or 40s or something, a lot of people just think, oh, it's just, it's gonna be way too worth it. Unless you already have an insane network by birth or something. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Then, uh, which unfortunately, which you, no, that's basically <laughs> it. <laughs> isn't very often the case. Yeah, yeah. but also that's how like, that's where Zaha comes from or, or mm. Chipperfield, Rogers, Foster's, like all, all those guys, I'm started by but yeah I think um it's definitely yeah it's hard but I think when you come from a technology point of view it's actually a little bit easier mm. because if you can come up with a really good idea that works and ticks all the boxes and people get excited about it is somewhat easier to to like raise the capital to kind of make that work mm -hmm. whereas instead of trying to start a company where you're trying to convince people to let them build your house it can actually be there's a lot more of a minefield because I've made mistakes on projects like back when I was 18 19 doing stuff and managed to you know figure it out and get it over the line which I wouldn't do now but it's better to make those mistakes when you're in practice yeah <laughs> and there's somebody else there who's can yeah. kind of help yeah whereas I was just doing it alone the whole time and managed to just figure it all out uh, but I kind of know all that now and you kind of learn from experience. Well, well, that's it. It's like I'm a much more baptism of fire kind of guy. I'd rather yeah, yeah. kind of go and figure it out for ourselves. And then, you know, you, you sort of learn it 
I find you learn it quicker and better. Like you sort of understand it to a higher level than perhaps if you just sort of had someone look over your shoulder and go, no, 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 change yeah, that. Do that. And you're like, um, why did I do that? And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way we do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And and after that, you you know, you're in a much stronger position. And that's what we did with our practice. We set our practice up um, immediately when we finished uni. Mm. Um, and me and my business, well, I, I took my master's, I, I was using, doing my master's and paying for it myself. And I thought, oh, I haven't got any money to start the business. So yeah, I took my master's yeah. loan and used that to get oh. the business going basically yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of how we started but me and my business partner went to uni together yeah you know and now yeah we're four months old last two months ago a month okay. ago we were four years old and we've done oh, four years old. yeah 100 and yeah 20 30 projects or something like that so yeah, it's not too bad i know like i said before some are small some are big but you know mm. it, it also takes time to build up that like reputation and get the projects back because projects go to planning and then they come back again so you, it takes a long time to build up that sort of like yeah, portfolio yeah. and um, client base and all those kind of things you know it's a challenge yeah but yeah, um definitely. it's good to do once it you start once you start doing it you you know now we're at a point where we like really i mean we always knew what we we're doing of course we're a business very yeah, professional yeah. but um you know now yeah. we really get it and it's kind of like right okay how do we move the business forward now so it's gone away from that sort of early learning building stage to now sort of you know trying to grow the business a bit more and yeah. do those things but going through that process is very difficult if you're in um, that typical sort of work environment, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, yeah, if you're going to yeah, run the company, you, you've got to do it to figure out how to do it. Mm. You'd never learn that in, in practice. But, yeah, in terms of the, yeah, the skills required, yeah, it's good to yeah, get a bit of a, a little bit of an understanding and then go from there. But Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but it's indeed. been, it's good. We're going to, oh, wow. Yeah, it's quite late. Should we have a look at the other house very, very quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can have a quick run we over. We can't see too much because it's still being built and under, yeah. you know. Um, under wraps. Under wraps. Yeah, so then now this is a new development. So this is our next house called Hidden House. So it's kind of hidden even on Google Maps. And it will be uh, it's kind of using part of our new kind of construction method. We're just putting in the ground floor slab now. We started construction two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But it's, I designed it almost over three years ago and with this kind of new method in, involved and then we've been figuring it all out and building the company up for the past couple of years since mm -hmm. we've got planning and it's going to be like a like two kind of gable ends similar to how orchard house has like one big gable it's going to be like two gables almost like the garage which is just a single story gable and then the orchard house gable just kind of combined and uh, with like a big atrium light well in the middle so it's kind of set back on this big hedge mm -hmm. so even when you're stood walking by the hedge you won't be able to see the building because mm -hmm. it's kind of way above the top and then we're gonna have all solar tiles on one side and then uh, yeah heat recovery system ground source heat pump uh, rainwater harvester and uh, batteries this time and then there's another there's a garage at the back where we're also going to put some solar on top of that mm -hmm. so we're gonna have lots of solar lots of energy going on and yeah, it's all timber frame, so it should be, it's going to be pretty, pretty sustainable, I think. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that's slightly different is that, which is part of our ethos, is to be off grid. So there's like a greenhouse built in to the building on mm -hmm. this corner, where it's going to have like a large greenhouse where we can put kind of hydroponics inside. Mm -hmm. There's also in the middle, there's another light well where we're going to have morph kind of farming, like a green morph. Mm -hmm. And then this section here is going to be similar to this veg patch. Mm -hmm. We're going to have like a lot of kind of a little bit more extra farming here. So yeah, we're hoping that we're going to get a huge amount of kind of vegetables and 
fruit mm -hmm. and vegetables all grown up and planting a lot more fruit trees around. So we should uh, be relatively self-sufficient, which is going to be pretty good, even with even with food. So nice. Yeah, kind of busy. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think it's been really great to see everything you're doing and yeah. look forward to hearing more about it but when it's not under wraps yeah, so we can yeah, find yeah. out a bit more and have a look around this house when it's done because yeah, exactly. it sounds really cool and I'm looking forward to having a sneak peek at the plans but yeah yeah <laughs> exactly off camera. off camera off camera exactly <laughs> exactly but um, no absolute pleasure thanks so much for having us yeah thanks for showing us everything showing us around the house and yeah. letting us talk in the wonderful garden so yeah, uh, sure. Good to see you. look forward to okay. seeing you again soon yeah can't wait cheers sorry to interrupt but this episode is sponsored by water offsets if you are working on projects where you might need environmental credits, then they are the people to go to. They specialize in not only biodiversity net gain credits, but also water neutrality and nutrient neutrality too. So if you have an estate, a farm, or some other kind of landowner, um, or interested in that kind of project, then they could really help you find you know, new ways of funding those projects and diversifying your land and farms take you through the whole process. And if you're a developer who's run into problems, then actually they can help provide those credits that you need to unlock your land and get your development done. So check out Water Offsets if you need help with any of those things. Many thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're interested in finding out more, then why not check out our episode with Edge Urban Design, where we talk all about, well, urban design and development as well, or our episode with Dougal Driver, where we talk about building with timber quite similar to this episode but more in the um, sort of high level and detailed side so might be of interest don't forget to like subscribe and share and also share to friends and colleagues who might be interested a huge thank you to our incredible sponsors marshalls water offsets and vectorworks our kind supporters julian goodson design and the birmingham botanical gardens and of course ndla and monster don for powering this episode as well as a big thank you to will and his parents for letting us film around their fantastic house many thanks and see you next time <laughs>